everyone. I am back from holiday season. And as often happens when I've been traveling and come back to my rig, I'm having a little bit of technical difficulty getting my um, soundboard attached. So if you will be patient with me for just like 30 more seconds, I All right, and without further ado, let's start the show as I have um, as come has come to be a habit with a clip from the most recent episode of Bad Faith Podcast. Here we go, and then let's just get right into it. Have I, in the middle of my Christmas stupor, missed some game plan for progressives before Democrats going forward? Because the last I have observed is the progressive holdouts, the squad members basically seeming to have sincere frustration with Joe Biden and starting to hit the student debt cancellation and other executive orders really, really hard now that they have finally realized that that is the only thing that they can argue that Joe Biden can do without him falling back on the excuse of the rotating villains of Mansion Cinema and the 10 to 20 others who are very happy to step into their shoes if any any of them should ever flip or go elsewhere, be voted out. Yeah, no, I think executive orders are going to be the only thing that Biden can do like that. And aside from like making like sort of foreign policy decisions, once progressive lose the House and Senate, I haven't heard an optimistic report uh, that midterms are going to go well for Democrats at all. So I think progressives are at least the real or like the closest ones we have to real ones in the House and the Senate um, are wise to push Biden on executive orders because it's clearly taken him forever to do everything, anything like an immense amount of pressure, even to postpone uh, the student debt moratorium. Going back to the Progressive Caucus, I I worry that there isn't one. There isn't a Progressive. <laughs> so if you just kind of follow the money, you realize that this has been a massive failure. And also look at the votes on military spending. So not only did the Progressive Caucus cave on. Uh, you know, tying the bills together, which cost $3.5 trillion, over half the Progressive Caucus voted for the military budget, right. which is higher than any point during the Trump administration, and about $170 billion higher than it was in Obama's last military budget. So we're kind of looking at it here. It's like, okay, what's the purpose of this thing other, to, other than to say, um, look how many members we have? Because uh, I don't really see it functioning in any serious way. I mean, you can point to maybe small procedural victories or, or language that was included, like PAYGO waivers, for example. But in terms of actually oh, changing start with the, the redistribution PAYGO waivers of wealth, against <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, I'm with you on the maybe we don't have one point, and I really am like I don't want that to be the case, right? And I would love to be in a position as independent left media to be, you know, able to be, you know, advancing, bolstering, um, amplifying important messages and demands that are coming out of the progressive caucus and i'm conscious of the fact that if i lose faith in that relationship it puts us in a worse position than we arguably might be if i did have faith but i also don't want to have blind faith all right sorry about that little cut in of audio that was a video auto playing on apartment therapy which is a website that i frequent 
All right. So this was supposed to be um, a conversation with Stephen Simler, who is the co-founder of Security Policy Reform Institute. Um, in part, I wanted to talk to him because he had a series of viral tweets that were comparing the amount of spending in Build Back Better to the military budget. And that's kind of his area of special uh, of, uh, expertise. However, the nature of the holiday and the fact that, you know, we had done this call-in episode prior to kind of the holiday week. And I'd gotten some of my thoughts and feelings about Build Back Better out there, but I hadn't actually had an opportunity to talk about it on Bad Faith Podcast. You know, we did the two-hour Zizek episode through the holidays so we wouldn't have to record and we could finally give producer Ben a much-deserved break. So this was really just my venting session <laughs> for, you know, an hour plus about how everything went so wrong and also start to try to think about where we can go from here because, you know, I don't like to just sit in that negative place. So this episode was received very well. I don't always understand my audience and what they're going to like and what they don't like because I thought that maybe this was going to be too much old news for you guys and that you'd already gotten out of your system um, over the course of the, the week prior. But I'm glad you guys liked it. And I'd like to hear from you what your thoughts are about what we should be doing going forward. I would also just like to flag that tomorrow's episode of Bad Faith is going to be a banger. Uh, we have Sparky Abraham, who is a consumer protection attorney, um, former colleague of mine from Current Affairs magazine, and just one of the most articulate voices on uh, the student debt cancellation movement that there are. And he can that there is, and he can talk in a lot of granular detail about all of the ways that the lenders have been abusing the system and the government continues to pay for them and yada, 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 but also make a lot of these really compelling moral arguments. And he's joined by Astra Taylor, who has also been on the podcast before. But what was different about this episode with Astra Taylor is that we talk very specifically in that length in the second half of the episode about what movement of what organizing needs to be done in advance of the May 1st deadline. Because I know we were on here a little while ago realizing that, oh, shucks, this moratorium cliff is right ahead of us. And even though we've had six months of warning, it doesn't really feel like there's been much in the way of a student debt strike movement that's germinated. And so I push, push her on that. Um, what is being planned for May 1st when the moratorium ends? And what the hesitance seems to be from some of these organizations that have been so impactful and important in the student debt space, why there seems to be some hesitation, despite their enormous contributions to the space, to kind of backing a student debt strike, as it were. So go ahead and queue up. I'm ready to take your questions about this. Anything else you want to talk about? If you want to talk about that Heather Hilvaraski article, I'm happy to talk about it. If you want to talk about um, Don't Look Up, I'm happy to talk about it. We're going to have David Sirota and Adam McKay on the podcast in January. But we can get into initial thoughts now. As always, this is a safe space for you lot. So let's go. Bri Assange, uh, you're up first. Hey, Bri, how was your holiday? It was good. Thanks for asking. How was yours? It was all right. Were you back in Cleveland? I spent a bunch of time there. I still have family there as well. Uh, not this time. I was in Cleveland about a week ago for an, another family event, but I was no. back in uh, Westchester, Lower Westchester and Mount Vernon over the past week or so. Nice. Um, uh, as a follow-up to the last time we spoke, I... Uh, have seen some of the Sex in the City and the one thing <laughs> I will... My girlfriend's been watching it, so I've seen, I've seen some of it. It seems like they are really, like, 
Can I curse? Yeah, go for it. No one's watching. They, they seem like shit libs now and like just completely <laughs> portraying their shit libness and like they're like making sure to portray themselves as like the people that have those yard signs in their front yard to make sure they virtue signal to everybody how virtuous they are. I'm on that podcast. Podcast. I guess your passing is younger too. I love you to death, (laughs) but I draw the line at podcasts. (laughs) I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. (laughs) It's okay. They just very, very forward with pushing how liberal they are. And then there's like that really cringy scene where, uh, I forget their names. Carrot. Anyway. The main one, the blonde one. No. The Charlotte. Brun- brunette. brunette. Yeah. The brunette Charlotte goes down and she calls. She thinks one of the black ladies is somebody else and misnames them. And it's just so cringy. I don't know. Anyway, that was my <laughs> thought on that. I don't know if you want to respond to that at all. I Other- think you, you might be an episode ahead of me now. Cause I Oops, haven't sorry. watched, I think the most recent, no, I don't, this is not an area where I think that spo- spoilers are going to go straight to the heart. Now I haven't watched season finale of insecure and that I will be upset about cause I'm watching it tonight. <laughs> I won't say anything then. <laughs> But um, yeah. I had that as well. <clears throat> what is your girlfriend? I mean, is she someone who was a a consumer of Sex and the City in its original iteration? Correct. And how is she feeling about the new version? Uh, she's still watching it. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like we're 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 like a dog with a bone. Like the nostalgia is a powerful tool and the TV people know that. And it's why everything's a remake. And there's something it's like, you know how it goes, you know, periodically there's like a viral thing where it's like me and then me 10 years ago, or, you know, people just like to see the passage of time. And I think just the fact that we're looking at these people, you know, kind of aged up a decade or so and, you know, in a new context, it's entertaining on the most basic level, regardless of what the plot is doing. And they know that. And so they're giving us trash plot. Yeah. I, yeah. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad I inspired, I think like a, a whole room of mostly 30 dudes <laughs> to make me go and watch some sex in the city. I feel like I should get, be getting some HBO kickback or something. They owe you for sure. <laughs> well, what else uh, is on your mind? Did you have anything? Um... I, I have a few things and there was nobody in queue behind me. So I thought I'd be able to get a few questions out, but there's a few people queuing now. So I'll try and, uh, narrow this down. Um, I, I haven't listened to the full episode this week. I listened to about half of it. And the thing that kind of struck me is he seems really dedicated to Stephen, uh, seems really dedicated to electoral politics. And as I've alluded to previously, I, I am not one who is as strongly, uh, uh, attached to electoralism as others. But, um, I, uh, I just thought that he was, you know, I think there was a point where he said if we had 70, or maybe it was you, if we had 70 Democratic senators, they would still figure out a way to, yeah, this was you saying that, that they would still figure out a way to partition themselves and not pass anything, Mm -hmm. which I think is is absolutely spot on. Um, 
I said I didn't really have a question about the episode yet because I haven't finished it, but I just wanted to yeah, say Yeah, sure that. enough. Well, to that point, what was interesting is, you know me, I was on the train home yesterday and listening to podcasts, and you know how I do. I was listening to Pod Save America, and sure. in the most recent episode, I wish I had a timestamp and I for and I would play it with you, uh, play it for you. But they, uh, it's a live show, and there is a guest. I'm not who, sure who she is, but I think she's part of an organ, um, an effort or part of the organization called No Off Years, which is trying to raise money and I guess grassroots support of uh, people coming out and vote in midterms. And so they were. You know, you have to pitch, right? Like, you have to convince people why it's worth their time. And as we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, like, the arguments are not great because Biden hasn't fulfilled any of his campaign promises. Um, and it's increasingly clear to a lot of people that despite there being really meaningful differences in terms of Supreme Court picks and, and you know, important things between Biden and Trump, that their lives, they don't experience materially much difference at all. And if they do experience a material difference, it's possible that they actually had a better material existence under Trump where they got bigger checks and our loans were put on hold and all of this kind of stuff. So what they, she starts to argue, what they start to argue is that not only might we not lose the Senate, which is the first time I've really heard people making this case, but that we might pick up two more seats, in which case we would never have to speak the words mansion or cinema again. Do they say which seats they think are? Because I've been looking at the map for 2022, and I think it's very unpromising for Democrats unless they're willing to actually run as as like leftist and progressive and make... I mean, the only way I see Democrats making any inroads in electoral politics is if they take a stand and they, you know, come out with like, Hey, here's a plan. We're going to pass all of this, get us into office. And we're going to, you know, cancel student loan, make public college uh, tuition free, you know, pass Medicare for all a list of things like a, a, a 2022 new deal. Short of that, they're going to get uh, to my eyes and looking at the map they're just going to get their asses handed to them in well, November. yeah i mean they're, they're not gonna you and i both know they're not going to say any of those things because they don't believe in any of those right. things besides which i mean there there is the obstacle of passing legislation i mean it's hard i mean if you have a cohort who doesn't even want to pass a 15 dollars minimum wage good luck with medicare for all now if they had a team a team mentality and said here's a slate of candidates Here's a slate of candidates that they all get elected, commit to passing, to, to voting for X, Y, and Z agenda. Well, hell's bells, I'd be out there beating the the pavement for them because then you would, you know, have the, you know, the long game of having the numbers to actually get some of these things done and fulfill these promises. But sitting on a year, of, you know, you mentioned student debt cancellation at the top of that list, which is something that Biden can do by executive order and has chosen not to do in the course of a year in office. I mean, it's just so... I think what you're seeing is a despondency of people just becoming increasingly politically apathetic because they don't believe anything coming from anyone except for the occasional Bernie-style figure, and even he's disappointed enough people at this point. I, I saw somebody tweet um, today about how there's all this rhetoric about the rightward shift of the country, but if you you know go down to brass tacks, what it really is is increasing the numbers of people who just don't vote at all. So the the left half of the base is is not so much staying uh, moving right so much it's just staying home and that's what you have to guard against and they know it that's why they're like convincing people that oh we'll never have to stay mansion or cinema again and it'll be the land of fruit and honey if we can just pick up two senate seats yeah what did you think of of bernie i guess he kind of has to but his statement about uh harry reed 
or AOC's statement about Harry Reid, for that matter. I don't know if you saw her tweet about it. I just, just well, you know, I, I'm not a political. I know a lot of people in Bernie world came from Reid world. A lot of people, um, Faz, um, Ari, right. um, head of the you know policy, uh, Josh Orton, and you know I understand that people have personal relationships. I don't. I, I don't feel a particular need to speak ill of someone, especially since I'm not that familiar with his record one way or the other. But the people who point out, you know, that the same folks didn't really feel the need to speak out, you know, when Mike Ravel died, I think that's a notable point and it's a little frustrating, but yeah, it's it's frustrating. I saw that Isha Legal did a thread um, giving some nuanced <laughs> commentary she on did. Harry Reid's career and you know, it takes all, I think it's useful for that to be out in the world. And I think it's, I don't begrudge people who have personal relationships to be grieving on a personal level, but it is frustrating when the political dimension isn't taken into, into account. Um, last thing I'll toss to you and then I'll cut down and let some of the people in the queue come on up. But, um, um, what was your reaction? It's in the, it's in your, uh, description for this episode what was your reaction to the charlemagne and kamala interaction <laughs> and simone sanders budding in there and trying to cut it off and uh, it was just really amazing watching charlemagne turn to the camera and be like they're pretending like they can't hear me which was just spot on i mean the only way that i think someone in that position could respond to that that interaction at that point is like what a joke. Like they're, they don't want to answer this question. And then Kamala's like, I'm Kamala. How is, is it Kamala or Kamala? I don't, whatever. Kamala, like a Kamala. Doesn't even, doesn't matter. <laughs> she, uh, she's like, I'm Kamala Harris and I am vice president. And it's just like, like what my, I had the strongest reaction to that and was just like, kind of grossed out i was wondering since you put it in the in the description you had some sort of feelings about it i'm curious what what your reaction was to that interaction and then yeah, uh, man, i've been like desperate i want to do like a live watch and like really go through the whole 20 minute thing because we talked about i went on katie's show uh just before the holidays and we reacted with like leslie lee i saw that and I have been wanting to, I know it's like old news, but I'm sorry. I think there's other dimensions to this that we haven't gotten into. And I think I'm going to, I'm going to have Teslin figure on the show soon and go through it with her because no one does a take as like a spicy take better than her. And I think she is someone who is, goes on Charlemagne's show and is more in that world. And I think can add some good perspective. However, I, I said this on Katie's show on some level, I felt a little bad for Simone Sanders because to intervene in that way to me is evidence of a need to either protect a principal who you don't trust to handle the situation on their own, right? Like I would never dream of interfering on like Bernie. Bernie is not going to know what to say better than me. In 99% of situations, Bernie can handle it, right? Like there's the odd moment at like she the people where I wish it was like oh, Bernie don't say that thing about marching with Dr. King, but like that is the only time I can really think of where I would think that me like the words that were going to come out of my mouth were going to do better in a moment than whatever Bernie had been training for for the last forty years of his career, and so one either that that lack of confidence in the principal puts the staffer in a difficult situation 
where they feel the need, like it's like we're weighing the lesser of two evils, you know, like, is it worse for me to embarrassingly put my body between the camera and the principal <laughs> and like basically do the like, uh, I can't hear you. I'm in a tunnel. <laughs> Sorry, you're cutting out move on like cable television or do you let her like drown herself and then perhaps berate you afterward for her doing a bad job. And so I heard heard someone's take, which is the second thing, which is that she has a reputation, some of the political reporting, who knows if it's true, but there has been ample reporting now about her being not a good boss and for her chewing out staff members and blaming them for her own mistakes. So if you imagine that that's the scenario, then I also feel bad for Simone for feeling like she has to do something that is like so embarrassing and doesn't reflect well on her or the principal, but feeling like that's the only thing she can do to protect herself from an onslaught, you know, in her last month of work. Cause you know, she's leaving Harris's office anyway at the end of the year. Where's she going? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not you're scared. more sympathetic of a person than I am. Well, no, it's not. She switched sides a few years ago. Right. She was with Bernie and now she's as shit live as they come. And, and it's, it's not about, it's not about like, having any interest in protecting Simone, but like the reality is like, that's the, you know, look on one level, if you choose to work for these people, it's your, it's a, you you chose to have to protect these people and tow their party line and all that crap. So like she deserves everything that she gets Exactly. on the same time though. Like I think the bigger issue is what's going on with the principal, because that's the vice president of the United States of America and the person there about to try to make the president of the United States and Simone Sanders, you know, ultimately, is not the focus of my attention here. So what does that mean if the principal's staff has that little confidence in there? And what does it mean if the principal is actually kind of that bad a boss? <laughs> you know, that's that's the story to me. That's what's really troubling. She's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, she's a heartbeat away from ascending to the presidency, which is just completely scary to me to think that somebody as inept as, Kamala is is that close to being president. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I I might have a little different take on this than other people, but you know, a president who doesn't even know what "Let's Go Brandon" means and will repeat it on on a live video. Wait, I thought that it, was Biden who said that, not Kamala. Yeah, I'm I'm alluding to Biden oh, now because okay. he's so close. I think he's he's plainly in you know in the twilight. Um, and having, you know, struggling to make sentences and be coherent and, 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 you know, that's sad on its own. I I don't think he's a bad person. He's done bad things and he's sided with the wrong things, but I wouldn't wish ill on him, but he's clearly, well, I I guess maybe let me ask that question and I'll drop down because there are other people now, Mm -hmm. but what's your take on, on that specific thing? is he looked completely ignorant of what let's go Brandon means. Was that your take? And and how is somebody who's the president of the United States so ignorant of what the culture of, of the right wing in this country is saying about him in that, in that statement or in that saying, you know, he looked unaware of it and he repeated it and it, it was pretty embarrassing. Um, I just like your reaction to that. And then thanks for your time. And I will talk to you again soon. Yeah, Thanks. sure. Uh, some people argued that he did know, but he was trying to make the best of the situation, you know, and flip it. Right. And then some people argue that because there are actually all of these liberals who've tried to appropriate, let's go Brandon as like actually a positive thing. Like, 
literally let's go Biden, which ugh, we spent so many years during the Bush era making fun of conservatives for not getting humor and being so lame. And, you know, they tried to do like the Fox News version of the Daily Show and stuff. And it was so cringe. And we thought we were so superior. And they say the same folks that were so smug about right wing humor think that appropriating let's go Brandon works, lands, whatever. Um, so like that is that is possible. And it might not be about, you know, cognitive ability. But I think it is also highly possible that he is in a bubble and has never heard of this. Um, and I don't know, man, like of all of the things that are going on and all of the things that he has misstepped on, I, if, if the president were so busy that he hadn't heard of Let's, Let's Go Brandon, on some level that could be a good thing, like he's in a bunker just trying to draft a new deal, but we all know that that's not true. And it is a suggestion that he is out of touch. It's a suggestion that his comm staffers just aren't prepping him on kind of basics. I mean, another moment where I, I was thinking about these comm staffers, it's not been a good week for comm staffers between um, Simone and the Let's Go Brandon incident. And also this incident with Miguel Cardona, the Secretary of Education on Charlemagne the God show, where he was asked about the... Uh, Howard University pr uh, protests where they're protesting dorm conditions and were sleeping outside for weeks and weeks and weeks earlier this fall. It got national pickup. They were covering it on Fox and all the stations. And he was asked by Charlemagne about this protest that was going on in his backyard about pretty abhorrent conditions at um, Howard University. Flagship HBCU, you know, focus of a lot of Joe Biden's rah, rah, we're going to do this for black people rhetoric during the campaign. They were going to fully fund HBCUs. They were going to cancel all student debt from HBCUs, all of this. And Miguel Cardona hadn't even heard of the protests taking place. And again, this isn't like a, oh, you're a bad person, Secretary Cardona, but it is like a, holy smokes, like what is your team doing? What are they paying attention to? What's going on over there? Who's driving the ship? That these really big, like, when I think of education news in the United States over the course of the last few months, I think the CRT stuff, obviously COVID, getting back into classrooms, and the Howard University protests. Like, I can't think of a bigger college story over the past few months than the Howard University protests. I mean, it, it, there was like a Bill Cosby angle because Felicia Rashad, who is still defending Cosby, came out against the students. And then Debbie Allen, her sister, who's on faculty, took a different approach. And it was like sisters fighting. And it was it was good content. <laughs> and Cardona, who, you know, they're all like team black and brown, black and brown, black and brown, seemed not to know what was up. So, yeah, it, it's it's. It's a thing. I guess it's like disappointing, but I think it's endemic of a much bigger problem. Let's hear from Andy. What say you? Unmute yourself whenever you're ready, Andy. Oh, hi, Brie. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Andy? Well, you know, ex uh, exterior stuff going on in the world. Uh, I'm I'm doing fine. You know, the holidays were okay. I'm, I'm we're getting ready to move away for college in a couple of days, so that's oh, fun. How's how's your aunt doing? Did you see her over the holidays? Didn't you say you had the aunt who you were having some of these tough political convos with? Oh no! Oh, well, that was that was my mother. Oh, your mother. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, I mean, she's doing fine. Um, I did want to talk about uh, "Don't Look Up" since it is uh, since it is relevant to the ongoing arc that I have with my mom and our political journeys. Um, personally, I loved it. Uh, and, I, and in my opinion, I feel like the people who really dislike it are the people you would expect 
to really dislike it. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I, you know, I would say it's probably the best um, apocalypse, uh, you know, like disaster movie right now. Mm-hmm. I was going to say at first Greenland, but I think uh, Don't Look Up handles it better. Um, Wait, what's the other movie you mentioned? Uh, Greenland. Greenland. I've not heard yeah, of I think um, I forget his name. Um, I, uh, I just googled Greenland like that was going to give me a movie result, not a country. <laughs> but I, but but Green, Greenland Greenland is also about a um about a asteroid hitting the Earth and whatever. Um, uh, I see it. Yeah, Gerard Butler. Yep. Uh, but anyway, uh, what I wanted to, I think one of the things that was like kind of funny. Um, I'm 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 assuming you also watched Don't Look Up already. I did. Okay, so now I watched it with my mom, and because she uh the language barrier, we watched it in Spanish. So there were there might have been a couple of things that I missed. Um, did they ever mention what political party President Orlean was in? No, and I'm so glad you brought this up because everyone on the internet was talking about what one of the criticisms that I saw was that it was too heavy handed in making the president so like such a Trump avatar, which is funny to me because. Up until she started doing the full-on rallies where they adopted the Don't Look Up slogan that were very obviously Trumpian in nature, like the hats and the chants and like it was very like 1-6. Up until that moment, I presume she was a Democrat and part exactly. because there was a picture there was, in the montage of her in her office in the first time we introdu- introduced to her. There's a picture of her hugging Hillary Clinton. Now, right. of course, famously, there's that picture of the Clintons hugging the Trumps. So that's neither here nor there. But initially, the coding for me, she's a woman, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like the coding in the movie to me was that she was a, a neolib Democrat up until the rally scenes switched it up a little. Yeah, I th- honestly, I think um, I, I don't and I don't even know if the uh, like the political ambiguity of her character was intentional. But I, I really appreciated that part, especially because what we've seen now. You know, especially the way, you know, there's this whole thing where climate de- uh, change denialism is something that's like a strictly Republican thing. But clearly, by the way things have played out, it seems like it's endemic to both political parties. So um, I would say that I think for those kind of like subtleties, uh, I really enjoyed that film. Yeah, I agree. If, if anything, I almost wish that the later rally scenes either hadn't been quite so Trumpy or if there had been something else to make it even more ambiguous. Cause I, I quite enjoyed, I mean, you know me, <laughs> I quite enjoyed the idea that it would have been a Democrat doing all of these things. I, I do think it's a, it's a weird off ramp of responsibility for libs watching if they presume it's a Trump candidate. Like, cause I think a lot of folks wouldn't have any, a, a hard time believing that Trump could do something like, you know, Oh, threaten the whole, all life on earth for financial gain. But what, Audiences really need to understand the extent to which that's a bipartisan, um, plutocratic instinct. Absolutely, um, and just uh, just a final thing, I will say. Um, I, I will I will say before I go. Uh, I don't know if you. Never mind. I lost my train of thought. But thank you so much, Bree. Yeah, no worries, Andy. Take care of yourself. All right. Okay. All right, Jonathan. What's up? What's on your mind? Hi, Bree. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. So um, I actually also just watched Don't Look Up um, on my own yesterday, and I enjoyed the movie uh, a lot overall. But one thing I, I found a little odd was, I guess, how unbelievable some of the characters are. Like, I definitely enjoyed, like, the overall gist of 
the plot is like an allegory for the, you know, oncoming disaster that climate change represents. But um, it did, the movie did make me think a little bit about our current political moment and that, you know, it's a film. So of course it's going to be very theatrical in nature and meant to entertain, but it made me also think about how we refer to a lot of the like squabbling that we see in Washington as political theater as well, in a sense. And with the current, you know, like crashing and burning of the Build Back Better bill, much like the meteor in the film, I think there's sort of two schools of thought um, regarding democratic political leaders with this uh, development. We ask, is it rank and competence that this is the result or is this like a deliberate fumbling of the bag, if you will. And I'm definitely in the latter camp as someone who's been fairly plugged into politics for a couple of years now. I suspect um, you might think similarly, but I do have a lot of friends that are in the sort of Obama Warren sphere of the political compass because I went to a very liberal university. So I was wondering if you have any tips or suggestions about, you know, various data points or, um, you know, events that have transpired over the last couple of years that I could present to friends like that to help uh, sort of pull them to my side and understanding that we have two corporate parties that are very subservient to capital above all else. And they really have a deep seated contempt for the working person in this country. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question on two levels. One, because a lot of folks on the left, and they might be right, I, I, I'm not there, but they might be right. A lot of folks on the left say it's not worth trying to convince the petty bourgeois and, you know, don't even trust us, which, you know, fair enough. <laughs> um, you have your skepticism. And, you know, it's a lost cause. And I, I'm, I want to have... Um, uh, uh, Catherine Luan soon because, you know, she does all, a lot of this PMC criticism and I, I think she would be an interesting voice to add to this conversation about the extent to which it's even worth trying to flip this economic cohort um, because she sees the interest as being basically too much in conflict with the working classes and a lot of the political discourse right now and the way that there's a focus on personalizing um, the political and talking about lived experiences over over material realities is about infighting among a large, but ultimately, you know, a, a large and growing group of p- petit bourgeois who are using that kind of like struggle language and the language of personal harm and vulnerability and black bodies and all of this to compete in a really tight uh, economic field for PMC jobs, right? Like diminishing opportunities for like a squeeze on like the white collar, like the white collar jobs. I feel differently and it could be my own biases, right? That, you know, I come from this world. I see that this is still a large cohort of the 99% that I don't think it's smart to just leave on the wayside. And I look at my own transformation, my own political growth and see a roadmap for how other people can make that same journey and one of the things that I think right now in this moment is making a lot of people woke to the left is that the rhetoric around mansion and cinema and the fact and the idea of all these people who are now arguing, we just need a few more, we just need a few more 
um, Congress members after a year where they said that uh, Don, um, Joe Biden was going to be able to do all this stuff and it was make or break and it was going to save our democracy and all of this. People have finally gotten to a tipping point where they realize that it's all a shell game. And there have been a couple of moments on TV where commentators have accidentally said the quiet part out loud about how even Barack Obama couldn't get X, Y, and Z done with his you know, supermajority. And I think that gives the game away. So pointing to pointing that out, pointing out all the things that people like Barack Obama could do and chose not to do, whether it's distributing TARP funds, whether it's bailing out homeowners, um, you know, whether it was, you know, pushing for single payer, whether it was leaning on Lieberman the way that we are asking for people to lean on um, Manchin, whether it is all of the executive orders that Biden has failed to execute, whether it's all of the complaints coming from the immigration community, including executive orders in that realm, you know, whether, you know, whether it's Obama's deportations, all of these things, I think just putting them to people and asking them to explain why. Because I think fundamentally in all of this, people still are really committed to the idea that these figures are good people. And there must be an explanation for stuff as long as they are good people. But what the Trump era did was make people take really hard stances against all the bad things that Trump did, right? And so if if because these things are not characterized as like rank evil, you know, the deportation is a rank evil. The Muslim ban is a rank evil. If you start to then say, okay, well, how do you distinguish, you know, Biden's ban on travel from South Africa at this point? Like, how do you distinguish these similarities between how they're handling the COVID crisis? How do you distinguish if it was so bad when Trump was deporting, you know, if Trump wanted to build a wall and that was bad, why do you turn a blind eye when Hillary Clinton said she wanted to build a fence along the Southern border, you know? And Trump in some ways has become this great, tool for the left because it forces liberals to contend with their hypocrisy. And while I think that hypocrisy, pointing out hypocrisy is a limited tool and that liberals rely on it too much when they're fighting with the right, liberals, I think, are more vulnerable to that that line of attack than Republicans are. And at very least, it makes people start to have to think harder about the world that they live in. Um, and I think that also generalized points about corruption and money and politics and the relationship between people's votes and the the, the lobbyists that they've taken money from, from are very convincing. And especially if you're talking to people who have any relationship to the working class, corruption is just such a no-brainer argument. Everybody gets corruption. Everybody knows how the world works. And the less well-off in the world you are, the more you realize how unfair it is, how corrupt it is, how everyone's been getting these jobs through nepotism and networks and da-da-da-da and how you've, you, you feel like you've been left out. And you don't need someone to like explain to you. There, there was a moment where you know there was that famous clip where Joe Biden said in some closed meeting, maybe it wasn't even closed, but he said to someone like, oh, no, there's not like corruption per se. But if you gave me $10,000 for my campaign and then you called me on the phone, obviously you're going to the front of the queue. And when that was you know covered by the mainstream media, there was this like, oh, no, you can't like Biden would never be corrupt. Like you're completely mis misinterpreting that that's so crazy but regular people are like duh <laughs> like money talks like payola like that's the entire world like watch the sopranos like it's everything it's everything it's everywhere and you only get that oh shucks like how dare you imply that this noble person could ever be influenced by money in in on tv like that's not how the real world works so i've been rambling but i don't know that's what that's what's kind of worked for me there's always going to be a lost cause here or there, and you just got to, like, throw down your cards and walk away. But, I, yeah, I'm, cur- I'm curious. Like, what have the conversations been like for you? I don't know. I, I guess generally, like, um, one of my 
roommates that I've lived with, very close friend, we would sort of get, get a little tense between us um, during the primary seasons, especially in 2020. I believe he he once unironically said to me that Hillary Clinton is not a, le- a neoliberal and that Warren was objectively the best primary candidate. So you could see how Wait, that got under my skin, obviously. What's the but, argument for Hillary Clinton not being a neoliberal? Did, did, I don't know. I think he pointed to like, I think he pointed to like a few policy stances that she had that were not really in favor of privatization. But she also, I pointed out, you know, had said that universal health care would quote never come never, to pass in the U.S. So yep. it's hard to think of a more neoliberal policy framework than that statement. But be that as it may, um, I think part of his, uh, you know, pro pro Warren stance was that the only candidate who would identify himself as a socialist, even if, you know, depending on your definition of the term, he doesn't necessarily fit that is Bernie. Um, and his rationale was that the American electorate in general is just very afraid of the term socialism, which is a point that I think I have a tough time refuting. Although, you know, as we see with like Gen Z, 18 to 24, 18 to 30 cohort, like the word socialism is about as, um, held in the same regard as capitalism is, which sort of brings me to another point um, I've wanted to talk to you about, which is that, do you think there's value in really just owning the term socialism for the left and trying to destigmatize it and like demystify it? Because I think that it is becoming a more popular ideology for good reason. I think if there were a party that embraced the label and really did more to recruit young people to mutual aid efforts and, you know, maybe if appropriate electoral politics that could potentially be successful in a few years time. So the, the D destigmatization process is already happening, right? To your point about the Gen Z years. And I, at the same time, I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't necessarily think that, I would put on any given candidate that responsibility. And I've said this before in the context of Nina Turner's race, that part of the issue is that people like Senator Turner and a a handful of progressives are really asked to make every rhetorical push left in the country because there's no left media infrastructure to do it for them or, you know, leftists represented on corporate media. So whereas David Frum or, you know, Axelrod can, will go on MSNBC or, you know, Larry Summers and make the craven right wing neoliberal argument. That is the party line. Every time that argument is made, every time a defensive capital is made, it doesn't have to literally come out of the mouth of some blue dog Democrat, right? Like, they, you know, the, the whole the whole third way edifice isn't sitting on the shoulders of any given candidate in any given state because some of that stuff is unpopular. Right. And they don't always have to say it. And I I am ambivalent about the responsibility of any given candidate to be on top of having to win a race responsible for convincing their entire constituency that socialism is good. At the same time, I will say that I think that some of the polls that uh rate the popularity or the stigma around the word socialism don't tell a full story because, and I'm sorry if you heard me tell this story before, we did an episode of the campaign podcast, Hear the Burn, where I talked to staff staffers' parents. 
And one of the staffers' parents was so interesting. We did a whole episode around it because uh, he's from Venezuela and does not like socialism, doesn't like the term socialism, but supported Bernie Sanders. And I was like, well, do you just support him because your daughter works for him? And he's like, no, like everything that he says makes sense. Free college makes sense. Free health care. His daughter had some, you know, um, health concerns as a, as a very young person that are, I think, kind of a lifelong thing she has to deal with. He's like, obviously, I want free health care for my daughter. I want free health care for my family. Like every single thing that he believes from a policy perspective, I agree with. I think it's stupid that he uses the word socialism. I think socialism is bad and evil and da 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 But I will vote for him because I don't actually think he's a socialist. And that's like that's the kind of approach that isn't captured by a poll that says I don't like a socialist. Because you know what? There's a lot of things I don't like a lot about, about, about a lot of politicians. Most people are very negative on politics at all. And they still line up and vote. Like people were not enthusiastic about Joe Biden and could have listed a whole host of things about him that they didn't like. And they lined up and voted for him. But there's no poll saying, how do you feel about corporate Democrats? How do you feel about neoliberals? How do you feel about people who take so much money in billionaire donations? Oh, it's negative. Oh, therefore someone like Joe Biden can never win. No, that's not how people frame things up. So, you know, I'm a little bit of two minds about this, and it depends on the context and the candidacy and how much it's going to hurt them. And maybe, maybe you know, what flies in New York isn't always going to fly everywhere at once. But I think that regardless, when you're asking, answering a question about, like, how do you feel about socialism? Are you a socialist? You should certainly not answer it in a way that throws socialism under the bus. And instead, you should point people to interrogate, you know, do you identify as a capitalist? Are there flaws in capitalism? You know, is there a way that we can design a world that centers people over capital? I don't know what you want to call that system. Maybe you would call it socialism because society is right there in the name <laughs> as opposed to capital. But that's what I'm driving toward, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a super nuanced conversation. Well, thank you, Breeze. Very interesting to chat as always. Of course. Thanks for dialing in, Jonathan. All right, Die. you're up. Unmute yourself when you're ready. All right. Can you hear me? I can. How oh, are you doing, right. I'm doing well. I'm Bree. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I'm Day. I'm really excited Day, because... Sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. Trust me. It's... I've heard it all. Um, <laughs> I, um, I'm excited. It's funny because I wanted to add an original question, but all the guys before me had really <laughs> fun parts. So I'll just kind of briefly touch on those pieces because I don't want to eat up your time. But uh, as far as one person with the political theater part for Don't Look Up, I found it interesting because lately I've really been telling myself, I think it's theater because part of the job description for corporate candidates is acting. Because mm -hmm. um, at this point, I thought what I loved most about the movie is that it really demonstrates how the political class and media class collaborate on how to spin the wishes of their donors in a manner that galvanizes the masses to believe the sky is indeed green. So really, to me, it just kind of showed how the sausage was made. And I think that's what frustrates a lot of people, because I think some of the psychology, which is kind of leading to my question, um, especially liberal voters and just ones that are like passive, it's not like hard leftist, is, there is this inherent belief that the Democrats are the superheroes in the movies and they don't really realize that it, they're co-stars in creating the chaos. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you talk about on the show consistently is messaging. And I, and I credit you in the podcast because I think I've listened to every episode except one. And it's, it's really taught me to think about communication and messaging. And even on the episode, Monday's episode, you guys kind of detailed how at different points they conceded power and messaging on this bill 
And so I'm currently, I don't know if you've read Jonathan, I think it's Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, Why We're Divided Over Politics and Religion. Yeah, I'm, I read some of it. Wait, he also, is it the same book or a different book that was the, the economic anxiety book that he co-authored with someone? That one I have not read, but I, I only read this one because I saw him on Yang Speaks. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is really fascinating to me. So, and then I jo- recently joined the political uh, book club and that was the book. And I was like, wow. But it really talked, because I've always thought you and he, uh, you and Jonathan would have a really great conversation. Because mm. I, I think you'd be able to connect some of the messaging, which is kind of that my question is that like, it discusses like the conservative and liberal moral psychology mm. and why they're different and what puts liberals at like a disadvantage structurally. And so far I haven't finished the book in, in total transparency. I'm like halfway through is that I can understand the argument up until this point. And so it, what I found lately is that I actually find it sometimes more challenging in conversations or trying to convince an argument with my, my democratic friends mm-hmm. than it is with people who ideologically or on the right and do oppose the things that I normally would espouse, but they seem to be more willing to engage with me, maybe because I'm willing to call out corruption on both mm-hmm. sides. And so what I was thinking as I was just like, you know, I often think the right's tactics on messaging are way more effective than the left's. However, I wonder is adopting their tactics helpful? Be- and I say that because it appears so many Dems, like, as I was saying, they really believe in the good faith nature of Democrats. Kind of like when you talk about how you critique Obama without turning someone off mm-hmm. um, to your argument. And so I really was curious what you feel is the best way to kind of speak to those voters, because I think that the Jacobin study was amazing about like the Bernie Sanders style messaging. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, if I'm not mistaken, that was focused on like gainable voters. And I think it's necessary to employ that for people like, and maybe like states like Midwest or people who are maybe more socially conservative, but economically liberal. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that really works the same for like I call them, I'm living in Virginia, so the Virginia Democrats, like because Northern Virginia is not like you 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 already know you're in those circles, so mm-hmm. that's a very different shade of blue, as Marianne Williamson always says, mm. than what I am. Yeah, that is a very thoughtful question. I am reflecting on uh, what it was like to be at the firm in 2016. And having all of my good liberal co-workers, I was the only black attorney at the firm, having mm. them all come to my office and having these arguments nonstop about Bernie Sanders and them asserting to me so confidently that black people didn't like Bernie. Wow. Yeah. No, <laughs> and, seriously. You know, they were just so frustrated with me and they, they, it was so difficult to talk to them and we, it was so heated. And I'd be thinking, you know, six months ago, I thought we agreed about everything. <laughs> and, I, and I do not, I think you're right. When, when I have conversations with conservatives, you know, I, I look at the, you know, comments cause I am a masochist of, you know, my, <laughs> you know, hit my, um, rising hits and whatnot. And, you know, the videos on, on bad faith, uh, YouTube. And so often I see, you know, I'm a conservative. I don't agree with most of the policies she support, but you know, I, I, trust her and I think she presents her views well or, you know, I think she's right about Medicare for all, even if I disagree with the rest and, you know, I hope to see more of her. I have never in my life seen a supportive (laughs) comment from like a centrist Democrat. Instead, I've got Bradley Whitford coming for me on Twitter like I'm a Nazi. <laughs> like it's craziness. No, I, yes. I have never seen. I have never gotten attacked more. I've never been like personally maligned more than I have by 
Like I, I sometimes forget there are even conservatives on Twitter. <laughs> like when I when I first joined Twitter, when I started using Twitter probably at the end of fifteen, beginning of twenty sixteen. You know, with my twenty followers or whatever, mm-hmm. I I remember thinking like one way to get more followers is to get into scrapes with conservatives. That in my mind, that was who I was going to be fighting with, like yeah. conservatives. And so I would Google like conservative words, you know, or you know congress people or whatever and see what people were talking about and like try to get in the mix and then very clearly like very quickly i realized like no i'm just fighting with joy and reed and nicole Hannah jones and Tommy <laughs> Coates. <laughs> yes and they're all black like i'm i mean clearly i'm black on my screen like that that becomes even more dispiriting because yep. you're just like no wait what what yep yeah you're right and, and it's the, the worst knockdown drag outs haven't been even just with my white colleagues with whom there's a certain amount of deference. At the end of the day, they might tell me what that other black people like don't like Bernie, which is pretty galling <laughs> already. But they they still they know when like I can back them down a little bit. Like they don't like, completely ignore the fact that I am black. With another black person, there is none of that even like edge of uh, experiential authority. Whatever you think about it, like it doesn't mm-hmm. even exist. And there is a understandable even though I do not support it, there is a cognitively understandable desire for middle-class black people to hold on with the small gains that we've gotten with both hands. And I respect that. And I understand psychologically why it feels so unfair to them in their minds to have scraped and scrambled to get the little corner of the American pie they've been, they've managed to get despite all odds after many generations of not being able to not having been able to achieve it and then be told, Oh, now we're going to do a socialism. And in their brains, it's like everybody's money goes into a pot and we're going to wear burlap bags and live in, in brutalist housing or whatever. And they just, you know, got their mortgage you know, on their brownstone yeah. and, in in you know, crown Heights. And they're really excited about it. That's a real story that happened to me. <laughs> so, uh, I I, like I I empathize with it and I respect it, but it also is very difficult. Like that cohort in particular, I yeah. basically don't even try. Like I have ruined so many parties at this point. Like I, it's <laughs> like, me if, too. Welcome to the club. <laughs> like if they open the door and they're wearing an Obama t-shirt, I just, I'm like, well, I'm not talking about myself. I'm not talking about my job. I'm not talking about my interest. I'm not talking at this party except to compliment how cute their kids are and to uh, weigh in on their renovation projects. <laughs> like, that's a lovely that stunt. Barbecue is delicious. Like that's all I'm saying, and I, I'm like the most boring date in the world at those parties because I know that if I say a single thing that I actually think or believe, the last one of these I went to, um, I ended up in a conversation with a woman, and she seemed like kind of nice, and I was like, excellent. Like this is where I'm going to sit. I'm going to be with her for the rest of the party, <laughs> and I asked her what she did. Oof, big mistake. Oh, she no. worked for she worked for Lyft. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about unions and gig work. And- and then, yeah, and then I'm so bad. Like, I couldn't resist myself. This was on me. Like, this is me being problematic. I couldn't help but ask her, because it was right after all of this had happened. Ask her, like, what do you make of all that, like, Prop 2022 20, mm-hmm, stuff? Prop 22. I, I didn't make a judgment. I just put it out there, like, what do you make of it? Right? I was, like, doing peak interviewer style. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to weigh in. I'm just asking you to do it. And her answer indicated to me that she was not at all going to even give a nod to the workers' interest in this. And I was like, wow. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to get a refill. Would you like some more potato salad? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. see, that's what's so interesting to me because I feel like, if you don't mind me saying, like, mm-hmm. I feel like the psychology of democratic 
because one, I just got a text like that yesterday, pretty much saying that I'm like the person that makes people uncomfortable, but whatever. <laughs> Dims, but I don't do it in a condescending way. Like you said, it's a very like, just let me just see. But mm. I feel like dim voters, when I talk to them versus Republican voters, is that Dems become pundits and strategists, mm. meaning that they're always thinking of who will other people vote for. Mm. And Republicans are very like, this is what I want. Grab my nutsack and let's keep it moving. <laughs> and it's very challenging because I'm always like, well, uh, Jill Stein could never win. Well, I'm like, well, if you vote for her and you convince right. 10 other friends and they convince 10 other friends, how can she not do it? But that's just too much for them to think of. And I'm like, I feel like their one tool that they can use is condescension. Because a lot of times, like using the Kamala Harris and uh, Charlemagne point, mm-hmm. her level of condescension, I'm like, this is the level of, I don't like condescension. I think that's a terrible tactic. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, this is the energy that I wish she'd have when, accompl- when trying to accomplish something against Republicans right. instead of constantly using it for the leftists, because I always say they're just attacking Republic. They don't ever attack Republicans in Democrat clothing, but they always come for the true Democrats that are actually trying to live up to the ideals that the party's supposed to believe in. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. I just feel, I at, least, I, at least feeling some sense of solidarity is nice because it's kind of like, I feel lost on how do you break through this block, but, and it shouldn't be this hard with people who are pretending or at least purport to believe the things that I do but do yeah. everything that would make sure it doesn't actually come to pass. So I'm like, hmm. Yeah, it's it's um it another way to put the condescension point you make, which I think is an excellent one, is that it's about shame. It, that's mm. the main tool, tool in their yeah. arsenal. And I wrote years ago uh at Current Affairs this article about the politics of shaming and picked up a psychological study that was explaining why it is that people just don't respond very well to shame as opposed to guilt. And there's, there's this really yes. nuanced article uh, um, take where because shame is so totalizing, shame is to say you are a bad person, like your essence, all of you, it, it implicates your ego and it, it implicates all of you that you either, you can accept that critique, the shame critique, in which case you're just a trash person. You might as well jump off a bridge or because it's so totalizing and you don't want to accept that you're a trash person and die. You reject it. You don't hear any part of it and you just dig your heels in deeper and you don't change anything. Whereas guilt is a more adaptive emotion that says, oh gosh, like you're good. You're not a bad person. Like Mm -hmm. maybe you did a bad thing or maybe you should reconsider this take. And that approach allows you to preserve the self and internalize the critique without feeling like, you know, you're completely, you have to let go of any value of yourself as a person. And it's frustrating to see that so many Democrats seem to be so willing to be like, you are a deplorable. Like, look at the language that we use. And mm-hmm. they're like, well, why are you defending deplorables? Do you think that, the, you do, do you agree with what they said? Do you think that Obama is a secret, you know, Muslim? All of them are racist. It's like, all of them are racist. All of them are bigots. It's like, okay, look, I'm a humanist. I'm not defending anything that anybody said. And I would like to point out that Democrats say racist, terrible things every single day. Again, Bradley Rifford will not leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) They're the same people who love Get Out, but still can't recognize that like left people, Democrats can also be racist. I'm like, wait, did you watch the movie? I mean, you know the story about Bradley Whitford apparently not getting that the Obama line was a joke. Oh, I know. I was like, shaking my head. <laughs> like, oh, wow, wow. So, yeah, it's like, there, there, and I'm sorry if you've heard me say this before, but there was this study um, that everyone was circulating in like 2017, I think, that showed what percentage of racial attitude, like racist attitudes, were held by various voting populations. You know, Hillary voters, Trump voters, and most most charts actually omitted Bernie voters, 
even though Bernie voters were the least racist of the three, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I don't know how there even ended up being two versions of this chart, but everyone was using the one without Bernie voters on it. But the point is that everyone was circulating this chart because it was like, oh, my God, can you believe that 45 percent of Trump voters think that black people are intellectually inferior? Oh, my God, can you believe that 35 percent of Trump voters think that black people are predisposed toward violence? Oh, it's so racist. I'm looking at this chart like. I mean, for sure, the Trump voters were worse than the Hillary voters, but we're talking like 45% to 30%. (laughs) You know, 30% of Hillary voters think that black people are are intellectually inferior. 25% of Hillary voters think that black people are predisposed towards violence. So if you're asking me to like write off a whole group of people based on this chart, I'm thinking all of these folks are trash. And especially if you consider the fact that some cohort of the, of the Hillary voters are black. Like, what do the numbers look like if you suck out all of the people who are actually black from the Hillary tolls? I I bet you it starts to look very similar. (laughs) (laughs) All this chart is measuring is how diverse the voting population is. Exactly. (laughs) But that's inconvenient, Brianna. And you're going to make Trump get elected a second time by pointing this out because black people are going to get dispirited and not come out and vote. I can't believe you want Trump in office. Insert all the other excuses. I wish I had the power to make black people as dispirited as the Democratic Party has made black people dispirited (laughs) (laughs) over the last 30 years. Like, I wish I had that power. And and people who are interested in this question of like voter apathy, I suggest you tune into tomorrow's free episode because... I get into it with Asher Taylor kind of at the end of the episode where we're talking about like, okay, like, are we going to do a debt strike? And like, what is the leverage here? And if, okay, there are, you know, substantive reasons why you think a debt strike isn't necessarily something that the debt collective is going to back right now. Are you saying, and you keep talking about leverage, are you saying then that people should not vote for midterm candidates, Democratic candidates in midterms, unless Biden cancels student debt? Is that like... Is that a talking point that we're all going to rally around on the left? Are we going to finally do the thing and tell people, no, you should not vote. You should hold, we should all collectively hold the line. Like, and is it, you know, if not for this, for something else, is there something that we're willing to do this for? Because otherwise we can keep saying the word leverage, but if you're not willing to do some kind of strike action and there are, there are some reasonable reasons why this kind of a, a student debt strike is different than a labor strike and, yeah, yeah. You know, but if you're not going to do a strike action, you know, what leverage do we have? Are we saying we're going to organize a tent city and sit on the Capitol and not make a demand? Like, is there a demand? Exactly. But that's <laughs> to me, that goes back to the point, like the moral psychology point, which is why I think you did an incredible episode with them. Is like, if, if going based on the research that he was alluding to, or Jonathan Haidt is saying, like, liberals tend to be more harm aversive. Like, so. I was like, but that's always going to put us in a predicament where we lose because yep. the the opposition, quote unquote, is willing to fall on the sword. Barry Goldwater yep. will lose so that Ronald Reagan can run. Like, and I don't think, and to me, it's kind of like, if you can't see the forest for the trees, why are we continuously engaging with you? Because moving one inch for the opposition to drag you back a mile is not progress. Right. It's simply a tally mark check to say, like, I have friends who are like, Biden's done so much and look at the bill back better. Look, we, we did something. And I'm like, but what is it that you did? Because if what you did isn't, isn't going to materially change the conditions of people's lives, they're not even going to know what happened. And so when you try to sell that to people again, they're going to be like, eh, I'm good on you because you didn't change my life. Republicans, at least in terms of the ethos of Trump, Trump changed the social ethos in, in the negative direction. 
but he was able to do the, capture the conscience of the country and change it. And I was like, if we don't do that in a positive direction, which Bernie could have done if you, you know, people like yourself and others were at the helm of the communications team, what? we're really setting ourselves up for failure. And I think that's, these are the things that I think about all the time. And it's like watching a train wreck or watching Don't Look Up. And it yeah. just feels like, am I going crazy? Like, is no one watching us this happen? And we're just pretending like, oh, the Dems got it. Is everything cool? Because the right is energized. And so it's, it's really yeah. dispiriting. I'm sorry to take up so much time. No, Listen. I appreciate it. You, ha- you had very insightful questions. And that's why I listen to Podsafe because, I, and I'm, is this not a personal attack? You know, I I obviously keep listening to the show because on some level I find it to be well-produced. <laughs> it is well done. It is. In fairness, and, really you know, is. I think John, uh, John Levitt is funny. <laughs> like, I think he's funny. They and have nice Tommy, voices, too. Tommy Vitor is coming around. Yeah, <laughs> I think I can't do it as much as I in the right to. direction. <laughs> but I, but I will say that, like listening to that show, it does feel very much like "Don't Look Up." Yeah, and it's important to I think know where liberals are coming from because I'm with you. I'm still trying to figure out how do you communicate with these folks because if you do the moral arguments to them, the humanist arguments to them, oftentimes they get very defensive because they just are not, I think, psychologically primed to have ever not been the most left. And they have the psychological edifice that's been built up to justify why any position to their left is impossible because if it were possible, it would mean that they were actually a moderate. It would mean that they, Mm. their self perception as being progressive, you know, wanting the best fighting for the best option there is out there just isn't true. And the ego, they just cannot, like that cognitive dissonance, they can't overcome it. And part of why I talk about Star Trek and stuff is like, I try to interrogate why my cognitive dissonance, when when confronted with that reality, when I was confronted with Bernie in 2016, I said, oh yeah, let's do Bernie. Instead of digging my heels and it being like, oh, there must be some reason that Bernie can't happen. And I think part of it is these models of a better world that I had been presented with throughout my life, whether it's my mother being you know, a secular humanist or, you know, my grandfather being a Black Panther or whether it's growing up watching Star Trek or doing transcendental meditation, like whatever it is that made me feel less like I needed to protect that kind of normie worldview that I think a lot of us were living in up until Bernie on some level, like a mm-hmm. normie political worldview. It was helpful to me. And I'm still looking for other access points for other people. Is it religion? You know? So the problem is nobody's thing. who aren't religious. But that's the thing too. And like, I'm so sorry. Cause I would mm-hmm. say like, I'll full transparency. Like I love Bernie. Bernie was like one and two with me. My, I was a huge Marianne Williamson supporter. And let me explain why. Yeah, it's for because it. for the first time as someone who grew up, you know, and I don't like to use the word religious now. I use more spiritual now, but like I grew up mm-hmm. with that teaching. I always felt like Marianne was the first time that I felt someone was able to adopt apply spiritual principles to political outcomes and political strategies. Mm. And I thought that was great because I felt that the one vacuum that the one, uh, you know, soft spot that the left had was the fact that we just relegated every spiritual person as they're just ignorant, they're stupid. And that gave the right the option to hijack that conversation and put a very pseudo form of spirituality out in the world. And I, and I love the fact she would often talk about how so many of the left movements included people from the spiritual community because we're not dumb. And it doesn't mean being condescending. Like I was like, I respect you know people's choice to believe or not believe, et cetera. But I think that by not recognizing that so many people do actually have some type of spiritual affiliation, even if not religious, 
we're leaving ourselves open for so, to so much attack. And so like, if you can talk to people like, cause the right constantly talks about their love for family or their love for this mm-hmm. or the morality of this or that. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have any moral ground to stand on it or can at least acknowledge, yeah, this is like abortion is a moral issue. Now I might view it as a private moral issue versus public, mm-hmm. but I can't acknowledge that with you. But if mm-hmm. constantly we're in a space where it's like, you can't even talk about that on the left because I often feel ostracized in the spiritual and the political community, but mm-hmm. I feel like leftists constantly are like, oh, I can't believe you leaving that. You must be stupid. You're a right winger. And I'm like, that's actually not true at all. The reason, just like for you at Star Trek, the reason I believe in a lot of the humanist things that I believe in is because of my religious upbringing. And I find that there's a gap between what we say we care about and what we're actually doing. Because I'm like, do you really think you would love Jesus if you knew what political things he would probably advocate for? Yeah. Okay. I, I think that's so insightful. And I, I... I'm going to tell me, I, I actually just texted Marianne as you were talking to me because, you know, she's my neighbor now and we Don't hang. tell me that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Listen, it's funny because I got to meet her at the Medicare for All, was it Medicare for All? The rally, the most recent one she did in DC, they had a rally because mm-hmm. I think Afeni, you had Afeni on, Afeni was one of the speakers mm-hmm. and like she let me hang out with her. She was like literally the most, everything you see here on TV is how she is in person and it was just so amazing to watch like i promise but if you ever do because i don't want to keep up talking forever i was like if you ever do like an everyday people episode i'm more than happy to volunteer for tribute because this is super fun to me this but is great I've, is I've, I've continued with you because i've been genuinely enjoying you so much and like that's what this is about right i mean like i i have historically gotten through the entire queue every episode um and i probably will today as well but also i just want to say day i have really enjoyed uh chatting with you <laughs> likewise thank you and so please much call in again all right thank you thank you for your support absolutely Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nick, welcome back. How you doing? Hello, I'm doing well. Uh, so I, I mostly wanted to call in to sing my praises for uh, Don't Look Up, but I did want to address an earlier caller that was dreading the possibility of uh, Kamala Harris becoming president, to which I'm like, I want that to happen more than anything, because it's like the, uh, I want all of the Democratic strategists and media to like live through the nightmare of that cursed monkey's paw wish coming through. <laughs> Wait, so first of all, I thought you were going to say, don't worry about that. Like, don't stress about that because there's just, it's, there's like an iceberg's chance in hell that that would ever happen. Oh, no, not. I mean, I, I'm surprised Biden's lasted this long, quite personally. Uh, She would like, you see it happening as like a, uh, you know. I mean, it may have already happened. Joe Biden may be a hologram at this point. (laughs) Um, But you're not imagining that she actually would win electorally oh electorally. heavens now uh <laughs> Lord. yeah okay yeah i did a bit actually not, not a bit i don't know why i'm acting like i'm a comedian i did a hit this morning on rising that was talking about her recent poll numbers where she's finally doing like one point better than biden or something like she's no longer worse than biden it's still neck and neck it's like they're within the margin of error of each uh, margin of error of each other and I, I gave a take similar to the way I was little caveating about um, Simone Sanders, not because I care about Kamala Harris, but because I think that my credibility is better if I don't, like, just randomly take pot shots. And so many of the comments are so mad at me <laughs> that I've been too nice to Kamala Harris. So I just want to say for the record, like, I promise you I'm more upset with her <laughs> than any anybody in the planet. I've been following her and tracking her. My first piece for Current Affairs ever was about... Kamala Harris being put on a pedestal as the next great black hope and how impossibly 
um, craven that is to ignore her criminal justice record in particular when you're saying that she's good for black people. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm happy to be the one to, to take those shots where I see them like, uh, ahead of Christmas Eve, the joke that I made was like, you know, a modern day Christmas Carol would be like three ghosts visiting Kamala Harris to, you know, show her the errors of her ways. And she repents by immediately taking out Joe Biden and erasing all of our debt and giving us all health care through executive action. But Look, if Kamala Harris, they asked me this morning, like, how could Kamala Harris bring her numbers up? And I was like, look, at the end of the day, if she chooses to keep going along with the Biden administration and she's yoked herself to him, that's the that's it. That's the game. Like, there is a version of Kamala Harris where she presented herself as a progressive, where she was one of the first senatories of Bernie's, uh, you know, Medicare for all bill in 2017, where she is tweeting about how we need to have recurring $2,000 a month payments, where she says that not only should COVID vaccines be free, but treatment should be free as well, which is a hop, skip, and a jump for Medicare for all, which is something I pointed out. That's why it would be even more incredible if she became president, because you could just retweet all that stuff right in her face at the new POTUS account every day. I mean, you're you're locked and loaded. You're ready to go. People tweet this stuff at her as VP, and frankly, Biden had some of that stuff. Biden, Biden was saying about student debt cancellation for one. He made a lot of promises on Twitter, but they don't care. It doesn't matter. They're impervious to that because there is no actual movement energy connected to the idea of political consequences. There is none. So people complain on the internet and people were mad at Glenn Greenwald today. Did you guys see that Glenn tweet where he and Nathan Robinson, both friends of the pod, were going back and forth at each other a little bit because, you know, Glenn was tweeting that basically the role of most of left media is to continue to sheep her people into the Democratic Party. And Nathan was like, this is a mischaracterization of the left and blah, blah, blah. But I was like, Nathan, regardless of whether you think that maybe Glenn is, you know, being too hype by a factor of 10, like it may be sticking a little too far. At the end of the day, how can you disagree with the fact that there is no real part of the left that is ever willing to say you shouldn't vote for Joe Biden? Like, Set the greens, baby. I I, uh, I personally delivered those uh, the the write-in forms and fees for Howie Hawkins with my state capital. So so there you're are, welcome, everybody. There, there are people, right? Like you know, everyone knows I'm a Green Party voter. Like, but I, in terms of left media humans, I was the I I don't mean to. I'm not trying to like put a install a halo on my own head or anything. But I can't re- recall very many people other than myself. Maybe like. Katie, I can't remember exactly how she framed her position leading up to the election last year, but who weren't saying that we all needed to vote for Biden. Like I, I thought, oh, sorry. Um, I, I thought the most kind of, uh, the, the, the most centrist message that I was willing to put up with leading to this last election was one from a uh, James Adomian who was like kind of half endorsing the movement for a people's party, but his whole line, which I, I think should have been the pervasive one, which was like, We'll do this for you one last time, but after this, we're done. I mean, and that, even that, that to me is like way to the left of where most people were. I, I don't want, I don't want to say just Katie. I mean, like people like Leslie Lee, none of those people were sheep herding for Biden, but the mainstream, like TYT, my majority report, majority report, like that cohort of the left, which is like, you know, those are huge. Like those are the two biggest channels out there i think even and i don't want to misrepresent so if this isn't true and this is not a personal attack i I really like kyle but like i think even kyle was like we got to vote for biden right like then what are we it is it is notable 
right? Like the, this podcast got put on the map in part because I simply asked Noam Chomsky, not combatively, not rudely. I simply asked Noam Chomsky at what point we needed to stop voting for blue no matter who. Like what's the conditions where we will stop this? Even if you say that Trump is a unique threat and I – let's say hypothetically I agree with that in, in the James Adomian kind of way. Okay, this is the last time. At what point are you going to say we should risk not Trump but Romney, you know, some somebody who doesn't seem so evil on the, on their face, in order to make our voices heard? And that was a question that made us trend on Twitter for a day, you know? Like, that is just so anathema to so much of the left. And, like, there are people who still hate me to this day for that. Um, that Chomsky interview was just like, it's, it's when you find out Santa Claus isn't real. Like, I, I was really disappointed. Um, but uh, to, to move on, though, to uh, Don't Look Up, mm-hmm. uh, you were talking earlier about how the president was coded a political party. My read on that is a straight up Democrat, if only because the uh, the the thing that's uh, like the through line that's through it is the deference to both uh, donors and to Silicon Valley. Like, uh, in, in fact, I think the single greatest thing of the whole movie, and, and I'm going to spoil it, so if anybody listening wants to, like, hold their ears or whatever, is the Peter Isherwell character, if only because he's this perfect amalgamation of all of the, like, sociopathic, tech fraud, like, uh, immortalist billionaires. Mm-hmm. And, like, the best joke of the whole movie, honestly, is is the ending where the president dies, because the thing that's especially funny about that joke is that it's the most preposterous, ridiculous, implausible prediction ever, and yet it's the only thing that the predictive algorithm of that technology actually got right. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I thought, when, again, if, assuming we're just doing spoilers now, I come back in 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this. But when, you know, there's the escape ship that the turn that all the rich people have, and they're off into space, a part of me was thinking, wow, it's like kind of sucks that this technology works, but the technology to, you know, get rid of the asteroid didn't work. That seemed a little oh, inconsistent. Yeah. Like, but then they land on the planet 22,000 years from now or whatever, and they're like, well, half the pods failed, but that's better than expected. <laughs> and like, and oh, the rest of us are immediately dead when we walk off right. into the surface. Yeah, it was right. a perfect icing on that cake. Uh, but um, so the other thing that I'm noticing, and I guess Nathan kind of touched on this in his thing of just like problematizing why there's so many like negative reviews for it. Uh, the social media algorithms really want me to look at all of the, like, you know, super serious uh, liberal tastemaker media things, like, with their negative reviews for it and all of their kind of weird criticism that either doesn't get it or I I more suspect that they're uh, incentivized to not get it to point out the actual central message of the movie, which is 100% correct, which is the belief that kind of... uh, politicians and billionaires and technology is going to save us from the existential crises that uh, loom over us is complete fantasy and anything that we can and do now should probably be done now and this constant like punching the football uh, to wait for somebody else to fix it is kind of the thing that's ultimately going to doom us all. To me um, that's also the message of the Planet of the Humans documentary which I recommend you and everybody watch because the they'll they'll come up with a ton of bad faith criticisms for it like oh it's it's anti-population it's uh it's it's eco-terrorism or fascism or whatever but the point that it's making 
is that this movement has been co-opted by billionaires and corporations and is just now another instrument of industrial capitalism that's just kind of adding to this already terrible problem. And since you anything that kind of points out that that pervasive kind of idea in our culture and how much bullshit it is, it, it, like everybody has to kind of focus their very serious lasers on it and, uh, you know, tell you that it's not the thing that you're supposed to think about as a concerned citizen. Yeah, I was actually um, eating dinner with Michael Moore recently for reasons and was embarrassed that I hadn't watched it yet. Uh, so you're reminding me, I'm literally just like opening a tab right now so I don't forget to watch that probably later tonight or tomorrow. If you have dinner with him again, could you tell him to just like double down on that message? Because I feel like he's really shied away from it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I remember when the whole thing was happening and it was difficult because I believe it was during the campaign and Josh Fox and Michael Moore were both surrogates. And I had just spent some time with Josh Fox in New Hampshire and he was like, you know, and he continues to try to encourage me to be anti the film. And I was like, Josh, I haven't watched it, but this is a lot. And, you know, I remember at the time feeling like I'm just going to be Switzerland. I don't have time to deal with this right now. And, but I remember the blowback. I mean, the, 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 the pervasive narrative was very much anti Michael Moore. Well, and, did you see that piece that the gray zone published about how Josh Fox is totally in the tank for a ton of these rich people kind of pushing this? Uh... I have seen, like, I see the stuff on Twitter. I see the barbs. Like when, if it involves two people, I know I, I I need to sit down and like parse the stuff. I can't weigh in. Like if I'm not weighing in on something, it's because I'm like, okay, like I actually have to know what I'm talking about. And I I've noticed that the 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 narrative thread seems to have shifted from at the time it seemed like everyone conclusively was like Michael Moore's lost the thread to now it's Josh Fox who people are very antagonistic about. So I'm really interested to tune in at this point that I have time and space to consider it. Unlike during like. February 2020. I'm so glad that that's the case. I've been off Twitter for some time, so I haven't really seen that arc. But if that is what's happening, then terrific. It's 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 long overdue. Yeah, I, I think I do think that Michael got a little shook, um, but it's worth revisiting. And maybe we'll have him on the podcast again. It's been a, about a year since he's been on, so we should have him back. Um, the, and he was a producer on it, but the actual filmmakers, uh, uh, Jeff Gibbs and Ozzy Zener, they're fascinating. They're really smart, really insightful. If you could get them on, I think that they're, a, like, look, Michael's great and everything, but he was kind of, you know, just the kind of publicity face of the thing. But the actual substance behind it are those two guys, and I think that they deserve a lot more kind of exposure and credit. And I can uh, get off this call now and make room for everybody else, but I appreciate it as always. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick, and thank you for that recommendation. All right, Jahan, my friend, you're back. Also, am I bungling your name again? No, yeah, you, you, that's it, Jahan. You said okay. it great. All right. How, How are you, you Bree? I'm I'm good. I'm rocking and rolling. My blood sugar is a little low, but food is on its way. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. I just got back from the zoo with my niece and nephew, and I'm like, oh, I need a brewski because this is too much. <laughs> How um, old are they? They are eight and six. Oh, those are lovely yeah. ages. They're so obedient and so wonderful, but I was also <laughs> there with my mother, and um, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's no wonderful he said yes you already know <laughs> so um um and I, and I saw um the lovely christmas gifts that you got um 
the brooch and the pearls, those are incredible. Um, it was, it's very sweet. My, my great grandmother, uh, passed in 2005, but my great aunt has been holding on to those. And she said, wow. my mom, when we were in Cleveland last week for us to open on Christmas, it was such a lovely, lovely surprise. Yeah. Super classy. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Don't Look Up because I thought it was excellent. Um, I have never mm-hmm. hollered so loud and, and just, <laughs> you know, holding my stuff, but also like super sad um, at times too. But yeah. two of the most striking things about the movie for me were the part where the United Nations and everybody else in other countries had gotten together to create, you know, their own rescue project. And the motherfuckers, bro- bl- you know, blew them up. Yeah. Like, that, you know, of course it was a dramatic moment in the film, but I don't know if, I mean, it just really was such a stark illustration about how like corporate interests will literally stop at nothing. Like yeah. the whole rest of the whole damn world can get together, you know, for something benevolent. Like in this case they did, which is an amazing feat. Right. But mm-hmm. even still, you know, Bash was just like, we're, we're going to blow that piece of shit up. And, mm-hmm. and it's, and, and we've seen so many examples of this in the past, um, where, you know, th- you know, things like the Amazon rainforest and just all sorts of things have been sacrificed, you know, and it, with the rest of the world unanimously agreeing more or less that these things should be preserved. So I just thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I haven't, and maybe it's because people aren't trying to spoil it on Twitter or whatever, but I also found that to be one of the most poignant and true moments of the movie, movie in part because we have seen that trope kind of manifest in other disaster movies. I, mm-hmm. I was thinking of Contact where the first time they try to, you know, test the machine, um, what's his face, Gary Busey. <laughs> does like a yeah, yeah, yeah. and messes it up but then they've built like a backup one in like the south pacific somewhere and so they get to test it again with jodie foster mm-hmm. and it's, there's usually like the, oh there's a backup because like hum- humanity came together and it was like an optimistic thing that there was a backup or i was also thinking of you know there's so many disaster movies where there's like an arc like um it's not a good Ugh. thing that there's an arc, right? Because it means that yes. people are getting chosen to live. But, you know, China's always got an arc. China's China's got a backup <laughs> plan to that, like, some portion of the people who survive are, are going to be Chinese. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to let America get away with that nonsense, right? And then there is this, like, trust that, you know, it, a part of it is this, like, belief in the superior technological ability or the fact that you have a state um, uh, a unitary kind of state apparatus that can get things done that America can't it's like this weird thing that constantly comes up in American films given that America is so like anti-China that we have this confidence that that China can pull it out even when America fails but then in this movie for it to be subverted and like the Americans openly bombing (laughs) and blowing up the Chinese effort even when that effort was going to save all of humanity really paints America as the villains. And I think the most stark way that I've ever seen in this kind of a movie, but it's like America at behest of corporate power. You know what I'm saying? Like that's more really specifically how it played out for me. And I like how they left it kind of like, they didn't specifically say they were just like, there's been an explosion. Right. I I, I thought that was too funny. And the implication is, I mean, the implication is that, as much as everyone is profit driven and as much as, you know, it's not like 
the Chinese government is sitting around all benevolent and just morally superior in the grand scheme of the world. But the, the implication is that at the end of the day, China wanted humanity not to die, the whole world not to die. And America right. did it. At the end of the day, <laughs> China said, you know what? Let's not risk this one. And America but I said, believe it. <laughs> I actually believe it, though. I I, I kind of look at the world a little bit like that. I, I mean, maybe I'm naive, but really, I, I think that that might be accurate. So it, it might be. And that's why it's like it was truly the darkest moment. And it is curious to me, actually, that there hasn't been more commentary about that on the Internet. And maybe it's because it was too subtle for some of the libs that are complaining about it. Right. Well, I wouldn't be surprised by that either. But the other part, Bree, when the the the, uh, the movie actor was in an interview and he was talking about the you know don't look up or the look up movement and being like you know I'm for both and I am you know you know sitting on top of the fence with a picket up my ass you know essentially you know mm-hmm, I, I thought that mm-hmm. was one of the most fascinating parts too because I just spent the last six months in an internship for supposedly a nonpartisan news aggregator, community gathering space and forum um, that was not, you know, nonpartisan at all, really was bipartisan. And, you know, even down to their logo, it was, you know, blue and red, you know, mixed together to make purple Mm -hmm. and all these like symbolisms. And I'm trying to explain to them that, you know, in their promotional video and all the stuff that they put out there, they're talking about being nonpartisan. I'm like, no, 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 no. When you yeah. take these very specific colors, you know, that have this sort of baggage and have these sort of signals to them politically, you can't, you know, and mix them together in, this, in the way that they were. It doesn't read as nonpartisan. It reads as bipartisan. And there's a difference. But, you know, the CEO was a boomer and uh, I had to leave it alone. I know I shouldn't be saying that, too. I need to stop ragging on boomers because I love them. I hope they're all happy and having good lives. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, my, my parents are boomers. I, I love a boomer. You know, it is what it is. But I, I, I think that you are right about that, you know. And I, I do think that liberals in particular have this fetish for bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. And you don't see it among Republicans. Like, Republicans fully understand that it's a rhetorical game that you need like buy-in from both sides and across in the aisle. Cause when it comes down to it, they never do it and they don't want to do it. And their people don't hold them accountable for it. Mm-hmm. Liberals, I, I don't understand. Like this is you know part of what I was talking about earlier with day. It really is like liberals. I mean, we say it all the time as a joke on the internet, but like it does sometimes feel like liberals like conservatives more than leftists. Like, mm-hmm. they spend so much energy trying to attract liberals. I, I mean, I'm conservatives. And that Chris Pine cameo you mentioned, not Chris Pine, Chris Evans. I, I didn't realize it was yes. Chris Evans when I was watching it, by the way. I, I saw that on the internet later. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's the whole thing. Like, that's exactly right. And some people were criticizing the movie as being the movie version of the Imagine montage that all of the celebrities sung at the beginning of COVID. But it's like, yeah. no, the, the movie, like, it kind of is explicitly critiquing that sort of a thing in the movie, in moments like that Chris Evans cameo. Oh, man. That kind of empty, performative, messageless gesture mm. of support for an idea, like a Just Vote t-shirt. Don't vote. I'm not telling you who to vote for. Just vote. 
you know. Ugh. Oh. I think you're. I think you're right. My head, Bree. I can't take it. I know. Well, enjoy your brewski and you know <laughs> decompress from them little kids. <laughs> Indeed, it. I will. Always good to talk to you, Bree. I'll see you soon. Same here. Take care of yourself. Thanks. All right, Reed. You are up. I don't think I've spoken to you before, Reed. Welcome to the welcome to the show. Unmute yourself uh, with but the the buttons in the bottom right hand corner. A little microphone. Got it. Sorry. Um, nice to meet you, Bree. I'm such a huge fan. Thank you. Um, Thanks so, for and also, thank you so much for this. This has been amazing, and I think you could do a whole podcast a day, which would be great. I was fascinated <laughs> by that conversation. Yeah, I um, enjoyed it. Yeah. No, and I guess this is a bit of a sort of. I'm just following a through line from a lot of the people who've come on. That I'm t- sort of thinking about like a way to define the community of people who, and I guess the easiest way to describe it is we hate positive America or, or we understand how positive America can be lacking in some ways, um, to put it lightly. Um, but also like one of the things, like I live in New York City, most of my friends are sort of well-educated people who listen to NPR. Mm-hmm. And I find myself really struggling to communicate with them. And I also find like a little bit of a through line with them in the sense of like what they're attached to and what beliefs they hold on to. Like one of the things I think they all hate Andrew Yang. They all don't like Jeremy Corbyn and a lot of them don't like Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering sort of like, and this is why like the, I told you so episode that you did was so amazing to me. And I wanted so many of those people who I connect to around that, to watch that, to say, Hey, Hey, you know, like, there is this other side. And I don't know, it was kind of partially a question, partially a comment. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> those are, those are, those are my people. Like I, I was um, over the holidays catching up with some old friends. Cause you know, you get the happy holidays texts or whatever. And you know, some of the people are people who I haven't spoken to as much recently for exactly that reason because i've i've found it difficult in my personal life also to have relations with people whom i love i adore i you know was in their weddings i you know i i love them and value them so much but i do feel like there's so much of what i do for a living that is in direct conflict with their personal beliefs that makes it very difficult for us to have real conversations or without me just keeping my lips sealed you know, about anything personal the whole time, which is, you know, frustrating for both parties and it's nobody's fault. But I do spend a lot of my time for personal and professional reasons trying to think this question through. And I do get stuck at this defensiveness. You know, why does someone hate someone like Bernie Sanders? Why? Like, what did he say or do? And I try to look at it through their eyes. You know, is he gesticulating too much, really? You know, was he unfair to Hillary? Did he raise his voice too much? Like, can I can I see it? Can I squint my eyes and turn my head to the side and try to see it? And I got to tell you, it's real hard because on some basic level, I don't give a damn. If, if Bernie really was crass and crude and there was spittle flying from his mouth and he was exactly the version of him that they see, that they project onto him, and it also wouldn't matter to me because he believes things I believe. And part of, I think, the fundamental divide is whether or not you support a politician because of their policy beliefs versus an idea of what they represent for you as an avatar of kind of moral merit. 
And again, that mm. sounds a little harsh. And I, I don't mean that in a judgmental way because I was caught up. I was sitting there. There's an embarrassing picture of me on the Internet in 2008 with a red, white, and blue lay on and my arms slung around a cardboard cut out of Barack Obama. Like, it me. Like, <laughs> I was there. Like, I did it too. Me know? too. Me too. So, like, if this is not a judgment, like, part of why I'm so preoccupied by this and it hurts me so much is because, like, we were the same. Like, I feel like I've been severed yeah. from my conjoint, like, my twin. And I don't know how to find my way back to her. And I I do think there's this part of the ego that is implicated that I don't I don't know how to get past. Maybe I should have Marianne on the podcast to talk about it. Someone who has yes. a, like a spiritual background. I would love that. Like, and that's what Dave brought up in some ways. Like, I mm-hmm. felt like something there that really resonated. And anyway, I don't want to take more people because I want to give more people an opportunity to come in. But I do think this is something to I don't want to use the word define, but give people a space to really jump into because I think people are craving a community. And I think a lot of us who are out here sort of flailing around with people that we love and just as you're describing, you were in their wedding, who are just lost in that way. And I think that would really galvanize a movement. Thank you, Reed. And thank you for dialing in. And if you guys have suggestions of things that you've done that have been effective, please do weigh in. And also, I think a thing that would be really productive is to talk to a person you know a centrist or liberal or however they self-define i don't mean to use a pejorative term but i gotta say it's difficult to get them on the pod (laughs) like i have asked various pod safe members um i want to give john favreau credit for coming on the bernie pod during the campaign season but obviously i was limited in my ability to really have conflict with him because i was in the campaign context and you know i would love to have people like um uh, some of the hosts of some of these, like the cut shows. And, you know, I, I was really happy to do a, a Vox show a few weeks ago that I think went really well because there's more pr- productive conversations that come with people who don't agree with you already. Well, and can I, I say I can just really quickly, and I'm sorry mm-hmm. not to interrupt, but really quickly, and this is going to make your head explode, but this is someone who I think, the guy from Unheard, whose name I don't know. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? Unheard. Is that is that a podcast? Yeah. Yeah. I'll DM it to you somehow. Howard? No. Freddie something. He's a British guy. He's very conservative and it's very complicated, but there's something very centrist about him at the same time that sort of like could, anyway, whatever. Anyway, I'm going to give time for other people, but thank you, Bree, for all you do. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Reed. I appreciate you. Take care. Um, Take care. Miranda, welcome. You're just going to have to press the unmute in the bottom right with a little mic. Am I unmuted now? Yes, you are. Welcome, Miranda. Uh, hi. Thank you so much. Okay. First of all, I want to say that I'm like a huge fan of you. I oh, think that's that. Very sweet. You no, know, like you're great. Um, and also that I'm just like a regular person. Um, Excellent. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, so I work at, Okay. So basically, okay. So basically the, the question that I want to ask you is like kind of tied into sort of the whole pretext of this episode, which is like about the build back better bill. Mm -hmm. And the question is like, why should I care whether or not it's passed? And I'm asking this from a perspective of like, I'm in my early thirties, like I know that there's a provision in there for universal pre-K, but it's like not 
It's like not really going to be that. I haven't been able to afford to have a family yet. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, you know, I, so from my perspective, when I hear, you know, when I first heard about the Build Back Better bill, like many months ago, it sounded like there were great things in it. It's, it seems like there been a lot, there's been a lot that's been stripped out of it. And from my impression now, it's like what's left in it is like some kind of BS climate things that aren't really going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge tax cut for the wealthy via the salt tax deduct salt tax deduction mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And then like a knit, then that, that there's going to be like a nicotine tax in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, which is going to mostly affect people like me. I'm a smoker. Mm-hmm. Most of the people I know who are also smokers are working class people. Mm-hmm. And I, I like, like, why should I care whether whether or not the Build Back Better bill passes? Yeah, I mean, that's that's difficult because there are people, right, who all the time accuse people on the left of being overly nihilistic and throwing away the baby with the bathwater. And it's tr- what you're saying is true. You know, I, while you were talking, I Googled the Vox article from earlier this month. Where, you know, Biden's pre-K plan may not be as universal as he hopes. There's issues for people living in more segregated communities. It's leaves a lot of folks out. Republican governors can opt out. There are all these things. But it is also true. It's like this ACA argument that, yeah, there's 20 more people, 20 million more people who got health insurance because of the ACA and pre-existing conditions. And that stuff mattered. Like that lives were saved. And it's very difficult. This is how you get caught up in that, you know, vote blue no matter who kind of mind frame because like stuff does matter. Right. It yeah. have an effect. So you're saying like the, the main effect is going to that the universal pre-K, maybe it's not universal, but that it will help some people. It'll help some people. Or like, can you just, some people. can you just like break it? Like what will, because like, okay. So again, like I'm just a regular person. My, like my family, I'm no one went to college and they were talking about it. And I, I don't know. I, I personally couldn't help but to kind of be relieved that it's not going to be passed because I feel stressed about the possibility Mm -hmm. more taxes. I feel stressed about the increase of the cost on nicotine Mm -hmm. as a, as a smoker, you know, which again, like I would gladly try to quit smoking if I had access to mental health care, you know, but, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, but like, but I, but I, I'm just confused because yeah. So can you just like tell me like, because I, I trust you on this. This is so fascinating. I want to say that first, thank you for hipping me to the mm-hmm. um, nicotine tax. I hadn't heard about that. And I'm looking at this article now in the post. Yeah. That's titled Build Back Better's e-cigarette tax will make people smoke more. Which- yeah. Yeah. And the thing is like, okay, so I work at, 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 a, at an elite university mm-hmm. and like, I'm a smoker and I'm telling you like when I'm out there smoking cigarette, it's like all the janitors and stuff like that Mm -hmm. who are out there smoking with me. And you know, look, I'm a smoker who would love to quit. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's good for people, but also uh, my state has already since COVID passed a lot of increases on the price of cigarettes Mm -hmm. and it has like really impacted my life. You know, yeah, I hear that. And thank, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I really appreciate that there are, 
you know, impacts that I might not be as aware of because they don't affect me personally, you know, like a, for example, as a non-smoker. And I really appreciate this show in part because people like you can flag what different kinds of folks are thinking about. I'm also looking at this Vox article titled Biden's pre-K plan might not be as universal as he hopes. And it, you know, runs through what the kind of party line is from the Biden administration, which says that, It'll be transformative for families and their three and four year olds. Um, it's a $110 billion proposal for free, high quality pre-K early learning experts say it's good, blah, 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 blah. But um, although Biden has touted the program as free and universal, um, scrolling, 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 so I'm not here all day. Um, there are experts warn there are incredible barriers to black and Latino families living in segregated disadvantage, which means their children are already disproportionately unable to access pre-K services, says person whose name we don't need to cite right now. If the federal government merely expands what already exists without rethinking who is in need, the deployment of these services won't move the needle, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, this is like background. Vox does this thing where it's like going to give you a wicked, like a wicked yeah. entry in the middle of an article. Okay, here we go. Red states might refuse federal funds for universal pre-K. In a January poll of American adults from the nonpartisan First Five Years Fund, 73% of Republicans and 95% of Democrats were in favor of making free preschool more uh, more available to all three and four-year-olds. Excellent. But the bipartisan support behind pre-K expansion doesn't mean that all states, particularly red states, will sign up. Preschool programs have thrived in conservative states like Georgia and Oklahoma for years, but there's no guarantee that Republican governors, who have traditionally left education up to state and local leaders, will want more involvement from the federal government. Quote, if the state's responsibility to fund government education, it's the state's responsibility, not the federal government. Each community is different. Sherry Yarba, Idaho's superintendent of public instruction, told the Wall Street Journal. Yada, yada, yada. Republican lawmakers in multiple states, including Missouri, Minnesota, North Carolina, and New Hampshire, told the Post that they were wary of parts of the program, with some citing federal overreach as a concern. Quote, Republican leaders have supported federal investment in preschool historically. The way the program is set up, it's not the federal government getting inappropriately involved, says Martin, blah, 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 blah. And then the second critique is that the money eventually disappears. Um, from 2022 to 2024, the program would dole out money to the states based on population trends and child poverty rates. Priority will be given to programs for children from families with incomes at or below 200% of the poverty line, setting aside 4 billion, 6 billion and 8 billion for each year, respectively. Yada, 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 yada. But like, what does that yeah. mean? You know, like that will, that's that will pan out over time. So like, is that like, I don't know on it, like on an intuitive level, like as just a person, yeah. Like what is in the what is even in the Build Back Better bill that will help regular people versus the things that will hurt regular people, you know? Yeah. Like again, the nicotine tax I'm t like that is going to hurt the working class. Like well, I know yeah. that, like you know, and look, we you know, it would be great if everyone quit smoking, but like especially during a very stressful time like right now and when people don't have access to mental health care, like people, they're not going to, they're not going to just decide that right now is what they need to quit their nicotine addiction. Yeah. It's going to affect them. And then there's, and then we all know that like, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure, like, correct me if I'm wrong, that the whole salt cap deduction, like that, that's right. That's all like built into the build back better bill. Right. That's like, yeah. I mean, well, so I kind of view it as like, oh, there's a bunch of tax cuts for risk, rich people. And and then most of the pay for is in it are coming out of like 
regular people. And I just don't know, like, what, like, is it, is it even a good bill for, for regular people? So I completely hear your skepticism and I'm completely with you on consumption, like these vice taxes as not being the way to go. I don't, I don't believe the bulk or a substantial amount of the funding, the pay for for Build Back Better is like the nicotine tax per se. And I'm with you 100%. You're correct about the salt tax. It's bullshit. However, I would also caution, and this is going to sound a little neolib of me, and this isn't an ultimate statement about whether or not one should like support Joe Biden for this reason or not. But I would caution you that if you did have a kid, the benefit that you would accrue in terms of even a year or two of universal pre-K, if it did come into existence and was adopted by your state and all of that, would far outweigh in a monetary sense the tax on nicotine yeah. consumption, right? Like it's, it's a little bit the way yeah. we're talking about um, uh, sometimes the Republicans will argue, you know, the inflation, you know, milk is a dollar more, 50 cents more, whatever. Yeah. And yep. therefore you should be mad that we spent on the child tax credit. Well, like some families are getting like $10,000 a year, you know, yes. <laughs> that's obviously yeah. way more than they're going to spend on like, yeah. Well, and that's kind of my question yeah. is that I personally feel that okay so the price of like cigarettes has already gone up vastly mm-hmm. in new york it's like yeah <laughs> you can buy a whole dinner for a price yeah. of cigarettes and while that has hurt me personally i kind of had this feeling that in my state so i'm in maryland mm-hmm. um it was like partially due to the fact that like the state was really hurting for money because of all the unemployment money that they were paying out. Mm-hmm. And like, I, but I can get behind that, you know, but you know, because well, no, let's not get behind that. Marina. People let's just ask them to t- attach all the rich people who live in PG County. Yes, no, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like why? Well, not yeah, PG County. You're right. Is the part in yeah. Maryland that's supposed to be bourgeois. What is it? But the Real like, Housewives it was but at least it was like okay i'm paying this extra even though like atomic like i'm telling you as someone who lives in baltimore like mm. the, the everything has gone to crap here like mm. they don't collect our garbage anymore like mm. you know but like if some you know if my personal sacrifice is going toward people who need the money then it's like worth it but it's like with with this bill i just have kind of i'm 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 genuinely very confused as to like what about it is gonna help anyone because i'm hearing that like the universal pre-k thing because it's like they haven't allotted enough money to it that it's like can it kind of be BS? Yeah. And it's like, look, I would be willing, even though I have no more money to give, if everything that was in this bill meant that that there would actually be universal pre-K, I would be like, cool. I but think like, there's, there's what not... is in it? Like, yeah. I, I, like I don't under, and, and again, I'm someone who like watches, you know, I, I try to stay pretty up to date yeah. on the news. And I, I really don't understand, like, what what is in this bill? Uh, I mean, it, it isn't the biggest expense in the bill, like those the salt tax. Yeah, correct. And so I kind of feel like, 
should we, you know, and I, I feel like even on like the lefty kind of non-establishment lefty side, we're supposed to be rooting for this bill, but, but like, I kind of just see it as like, oh, at the end of the day, the number one thing that they're doing is like giving rich people another tax cut. And, yeah. and, and, and yeah. like, I might be wrong. And that's why I'm asking no, no, you because no. I, I, mean, I, re- I really, tr- I really do trust you. I think, I think that you're right in many respects. And I don't, I don't think you should beat yourself up at all for not following the granulars because look, I'm supposed to be doing this professionally. And sometimes I get so overloaded. Like I, I, I saw the whole discourse about Matt Brunig criticizing the plan and I, I trust Matt Brunig and, you know, form some superficial opinions, but I haven't, this is not something that I've dug in particularly deeply. So I appreciate you making me focus on this right now. And I think it's a good reminder to people in the left media space and people generally that like, rec, you know, the average person whose professional job isn't to be on Twitter all day, like myself, <laughs> yeah. like it's, 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 it's difficult to follow it all. I will also say that it is not clear. Like, remember, the bills got bifurcated, and then there was the hijinks. Yeah. The, got the, like, the traditional infrastructure bill, as they call it, passed. And part of the argument that the progressives are making is that there's so much bad stuff in that in terms of environment and stuff that it's actually making the world worse if the good part of Build Back Better doesn't get passed. And so I think that you're yeah. right to be asking the question, like, what's the net? outcome yeah yeah that's kind of my it's like okay so then what is in the build back better bill that right is for the environment like in specifics and and i just feel very right. lost in terms of and, trying because to it's understand a lot, and you're right that people aren't really talking about it in those terms the left's critique is so much about and i think that's understandable the less critique is about how much better the bill could be how much it's been cut down from what it once was the kind of rotating villain fakery of mansion and cinema that the substance of what is left in the bill does go undercovered i think it's important to say though lest i be accused of being too nihilistic the the answer to your question is there will not be universal pre-k this is not a universal pre-k plan it is also true that it is better than the status quo and you can take from that what you will. It will, like the ACA, maybe more so than the ACA for this context, have a meaningful impact on many parents' lives and many kids' okay. lives. You know, should we? but that also means, I think, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be pushing for it to be better, the best program it should be, fully funded. All of the critiques Matt Bruning has made about how it's going to be dispersed and how the program is structured and all that stuff is also true. But, like, I, I don't want to misrepresent to you as someone who doesn't have kids, maybe doesn't even have plans to have any, that this thing doesn't matter because it does. You know, like, I just mm-hmm. – that same phone – the same, like, text thread I was talking about where I was reconnecting with old friends I haven't talked to for a while, like, two of them are – you know, had COVID babies, and the half the conversation mm-hmm. is them stressing about how expensive childcare is. One of their babies just got COVID and isn't able to go back to daycare, and she has to return to work from the holidays on Monday and doesn't know what she's going to do. One of them lives in New York and is telling me that childcare is $3,000 a month, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, like, I don't want to sit here and like, I, I don't, you know, there are people who would say, don't let the enemy be the perfect of the good. I'm not saying that we should be pushing hard for this program to be all that it should be. But I also don't want to sit here and misrepresent to you that it's like completely useless just because it's not what I would want. It is. I mean, it would, it would 
it would matter. <laughs> I hate that I have to yeah. do this. Like, <laughs> there's a, the, the angry internet part of me like hates having to admit this. But like, of course, like even in its most pathetic, ridiculous form, there's stuff in here that's going to matter for somebody. The question is, how are we going to also hold these elected officials accountable? And how are we going to prevent our acknowledgement that there is something meaningful being done here from being used as cover for the extent to which they have thrown our broader interests under the bus and not tried harder to deliver the full extent of what they could deliver and what they promised to deliver? Okay, so my understanding is that okay, I'm not crazy for being confused. Absolutely not. about what everyone's confused. The point of this over all on the internet, <laughs> but that like it is the meat of it in terms of a leftist perspective is still in the childcare part. Yeah, I mean, and that it yeah. will make some impact there. Yes, meaning meaningful ones. Assuming yeah. it's adopted by your state, you're not living there. I mean, you're, yeah. Yeah. And all of that stuff. Yeah. Like kind of Affordable Care Act, which was like kind of, you know, not the best, but not the best. Created winners and losers, raised yeah. premiums, but also okay. covered pre existing conditions. Like it's, it's this mixed bag shit. And to your point, the fact that all of these policies create all of this mixed bag confusion and no clear victories is exactly why Democrats have such a hard time convincing people to come to the polls for them. Because yeah. there aren't these slam dunks. Here, I gave you $2,000. Here, I canceled student debt. Here, I canceled medical debt. Here, yeah. I made college free. Like clear victories. Meanwhile, Republicans are like, hey, we got Ka- Kavanaugh. Hey, we built a wall. I mean, like it's a stupid little two feet of wall. They didn't do anything, but hey, we did it. <laughs> like, yeah, hey, we deported more. You know, we deported all these people. Hey, we did a Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, like we cut taxes. You know, right. which which yeah. is something that everyone can feel. Well, okay, yeah. probably not, but they it, it they imagine that, anyway. that they could feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 spin they they celebrate their victories in a coordinated way that's unequivocal in a way that the left doesn't, even when there are real victories on the left and the broad left, I obviously mean the okay. left, but you, but like largely you think that like the build back batter bill, it would be good for it to be passed. Yes. Okay. Even, even in its neutered state. Now okay. I'm going to complain about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will, I will go to my grave complaining about it, but that doesn't mean it's not obviously like, it's not, it's not tr- also true that there are, good things in it you know like if you serve me a shit sandwich as i'm at the end of a hunger strike but the bread has got nutritional value like you know yep. it, it'll keep me alive but like i would prefer not to eat the shit sandwich. it's like the turner quote quote you know it's half a bowl of shit yeah you know it, she's right she's always been right like that's correct <laughs> all right <laughs> so you know thank you for calling miranda and i yes. appreciate all of your insightful questions yes. and you know thank like you. let's enjoy our half a bowl of shit i guess yeah and 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 thank you so much for taking the time to do this again i really appreciate it i'm a big i know it's annoying there's people waiting on the line but like i really appreciate your insight and i feel like there's a lot of left commented commentators out there but you're one of the few that seems to always be pushing for the practical and so i appreciate thank you for i know that you get a lot of you get a lot of crap for what you do and i just want to say i I, that i really (laughs) that there are like silent people out there 
well, thank who you for- aren't big on Twitter that really appreciate what you do like me. <laughs> thank so. you. And thank you for calling in. I, you know, again, I'm not trying to, you know, gender everybody in the chat, but it is also really nice to hear from some women. And so thank you for not being silent today. Thank you so much. All right. All right. I, I'm going to keep taking calls until my date gets here with food. So you guys are lucky that he's running behind. <laughs> All right, Sam, what, what say you? Oh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi, Brianna. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Sam? I'm doing well myself. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. What's on your mind? Um, I just, um, so I, I saw your post on Twitter and I thought I'd jump on here. I downloaded the app. Oh, um, I love that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I love like this it. format. I'm, yeah. I'm a fan. One thing that I really do like about it also that I haven't mentioned this episode is that you can make these like audio clips of the part of the episode that you like the most, or maybe it's just a part where you asked a question and then you're tagged in that clip. It appears on your like feed. So your friends could look at what your activity has been like. And then also it gives me the ability to push that clip to social media and have people hear the most interesting parts of the episode without having to slog through a full two hours. So Oh, that's so cool. So, I mean, I, I completely forgot this is actually being recorded as a show that you can take clips from. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't mean to scare you. <laughs> that's no. Like... no you're so used to Twitter spaces now where you see like live and recording and everyone's screaming at each other. This is um, refreshing. Well, I appreciate that. So what have you been yeah. thinking about, Sam? What's What's troubling you or inspiring you or what led you to call in today? Well, I follow you, Brianna. I've been following you for the last year or so. I've, of course, I was um, I, I volunteered for Bernie um, in 2006, uh, well, 2015, 2016. And mm. um, I love uh, your uh, podcast and I follow you on Patreon. And oh, I love you. Uh, that, that you have a discussion on ideas and, you know, you want to break down these boundaries uh, and restrictions and keywords that people like to distract from conversations on and end up getting into 15 to 30 minute tangents from the actual discussion, you know? <laughs> so let's, let's redefine what this old person that died like meant by when they, when they said this statement or this, you know, the definition of this term. So I love that you go beyond that and you want to talk about the serious systemic issues that we deal with and this, the um, systemic issues I see that people don't really talk about. Well, in the, in the left community, I'm part of um, the left, and I'm also part of the libertarian community. Mm. Um, and I've moved toward, more towards libertarian since I've realized that, honestly, nothing we ever want passed on the left gets passed. If it does, it's almost like like um, a book on how to file tax in the United States. There are so many carve-outs, and it's so mm. broken up that it doesn't work anymore. And it's just a, a right-wing talking point at that at, at that point. So... With the way that we like issue money and the wealthy keep getting wealthier while there are small handouts to the poor, mm-hmm. I don't see any way of overcoming the systemic bound, um, systemic pressures um, that kind of counteract the policies we want to push on the left. Universal programs that don't have application requirements and don't require a tax filing, you know, or don't require an ID. Like these things aren't going to be passed as long as the stock market's going to completely break down if Medicare for all passes and the retirements of a lot of people end up falling apart. If like healthcare insurance 
uh, companies end up, you know, going zero or just going down a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, these things aren't going to pass if we let older people that already have investments and three or four homes and uh, retirements at a hundred million dollars in the bank. Like if they feel like it's a threat to their current comfort and they're fine with spending money and giving government contracts to their buddies, but they're not fine with overturning systemic uh, policies. So I I want left to discuss these ideas more and talk Mm -hmm. about how the current system enriches the wealthy and that those wealthy that aren't rich and donate to politicians mm. are never going to concede an inch. Um, they'll, if you concede an inch, they'll take a foot. Um, when you give up your rights, they'll take them. They won't give them back. And if they can find a way to destroy a policy, either with the courts or with legislation, they will do it and they will make it seem like they're, they're on the right side of this for our economy or for the working class. And I don't see young people, young people like us, like getting past that unless we actually have um, people out in the streets. Thank you. People out in the streets preventing cars from moving on the highway so people can't get to work. Yeah. You know, I think you're completely right. And to the conversation we were having a little bit earlier about the word socialism, it's part of why I'm not willing to let go of it. I mean, because there does need to be, some term, some analytical tool that challenges the system in the way that just kind of generally talking in, by policy by policy, demo, you know, um, social democracy, policy by social democracy, policy doesn't quite capture. And what I kind of love about uh, Don't Look Up is that the movie starts to tiptoe into this realm of really unpacking, like popping the bubble of just how fakakta everything is. And I would love to see the next version of this movie doing what, you know, showing to the world what you just described in a less fantastical backdrop. You know, and it's not that an asteroid is heading toward Earth. It's that, uh-huh. like, how, how is this for a crazy movie scenario? There's a, there's a cataclysmic global crisis which has cre- grown the appetite for progressive policies because things are so down down and out the economy is gonna completely crash unless they throw a bunch of money at poor and working people and so there's actually the political space for a new fdr the person gets elected and they have huge majorities there's a democratic supermajority in congress now what what happens as things start to stabilize what happens i want to see the behind the scenes machinations of exactly how nothing is going to (laughs) happen like i I would love to see that that movie you know, I would watch it. I would yeah. love to watch it. I would love to see the hurdles that that person would have to go through to pass, at, like pass one policy. <laughs> right. It's like the West Wing, but like actually just do it though. Like <laughs> realistically show like the, the, the Barrett, Barnett, Barrett, whatever administration is actually the villain. Like the West Wing, everything he does, he acts like the villain. This is what, you know, the West Wing thing guys are mm-hmm. packing every week. Like, because 
because nothing they Aaron Sorkin is insightful enough to know that nothing happens like nothing happens in Washington so he's writing truthfully about how this administration doesn't do anything but he's still committed to making the president a hero so mm -hmm. he comes up with all of these pithy speeches that excuse why nothing happens and just dress, mm -hmm. dresses it up and like well we have to do neoliberalism for the greater good I want to see a version I want to see the script where it's exactly the same but they just acknowledge that Bartlett is the bad guy that Bartlett is the villain and the I think I played on a, the last episode this clip of um the kind of Bernie style or Nader style character getting dressed down by the head of the comms department. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Bradley Whitford, friend of the show. <laughs> uh, and like that's we're supposed to be rooting for Bradley Whitford in the scene. I want to see the counterfactual version of it because I think that that could be more elucidating to the average liberal voter than a million episodes of me screaming at the top of my lungs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would love to see a, a, read a script. How I'll read a play, I'll watch a movie. I'm um, <laughs> seeing that. I just don't think anything anything like that will ever actually be done. I don't think that um, it's re it, because there are so many systemic ish issues in play. All we'd watch, all be, we'd be watching, for example, from the left, would be um, a movie about uh, a person that never gets anything done. And if they try, um, they're, they'll end up being demonized and uh, shunned and thrown out. Yeah. I mean, it could <laughs> be a Calder movie about Bernie. I mean, it could be a movie about a million historical <laughs> figures who've tried. You know. I would love to, like, for your perspective, because you have a, I think you, I believe you have a pretty strong, if obviously you're, you're a lawyer, and I believe you understand the economy very well, but if something like Medicare for All happened, and, which is something I, I advocate for, um, I love the European system. When I went there and I and I got sick for uh, during my travels, like I was treated and no one asked me for ID or anything, mm -hmm. or, or for yeah, they even the medications too. So it was amazing. But, yeah, Chrissy um, Teigen just tweeted over the holidays. Uh, she was I don't know where in Europe, but I think maybe she was in uh, the UK. And her kid got sick, and she was tweeting about how great it was that he could go to the hospital and no one charged them for anything. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, like, it's too bad that you spent the whole campaign season shitting on Bernie, but okay, yeah. you've come around. <laughs> it, it was the UK for me as well. So yeah. I, I totally, I get where where she didn't, she's she had a good experience because it didn't happen here. Um, yeah. If she was a she was a foreigner. Or um, Rob, uh, Rob, um, what's his name from? I'm so sorry, uh, Rob Delaney. The actor from that amazing show on uh, Amazon, sorry, Amazon, whatever it is, what it is, uh, uh, he is a, was a big Bernie bro, and in, in part because he married a British woman and was living in the UK when one of his children got a terminal illness, and it was extremely tragic and very sad, and the child expired, but yeah. he talks a lot about how he's so passionate about Medicare for All because he's so grateful that in the midst of that tragedy, cost was one thing that he didn't have to be thinking about. So there are all of these examples. Um, but to your question, I think, which is about, you know, uh, the economic consequences of moving to a single payer system. And as a result, what kind of pushback we're going to get from those industry well, folks who are well, my, my, my question is less towards, uh, in fact, like the pushback will be amazing. Um, but I'm wondering what will happen to those retirement accounts that are investing in index funds and, and everything else that basically are shareholders of um, these companies. And while these companies, maybe you may be able to use the infrastructure of these companies and pull them in um, for, for the 
for the majority of their infrastructure will need to be derailed to thrown away and their stock prices if they're still there will 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 be for a small fraction of what they currently are like these kind of systemic forces overcoming these kind of systemic forces is a large hurdle right that the media and political pundits and um figures they never discuss yeah. because they feel it's it's, a, it's above the head of individuals think, and they feel yeah. yeah i think that's a great question and i'm I have a guest coming up um he's an economist fadhel kaboob who i listened mm-hmm. to him do a, an amazing podcast on inflation and i feel like i actually understand it now and he was talking about some of those effects hopefully mm-hmm. that will be for next thursday's episode can you guys okay. give me like 30 seconds to let my date in the door and then I'm going to come back to you. Just give me 30 seconds of silence. Actually here, I'm going to put, I'm going to put, I'm just going to sound on. Uh, here's my rising hit from this morning. Cause that's what's open on my computer. Cause I'm a narcissist. I'm a Harris with 43% of respondents approving of Biden's performance compared to Harris, 44%. Over half of all respondents disapproved of both POTUS and the VP. Here to weigh in is Brianna Joy Gray. She's the host of the Bad Faith Podcast and former national press secretary for the Sanders campaign. Welcome, Brianna. Thank you, Ryan. Now, obviously, this is all within the margin of error. I obviously Uh, didn't get you that far into the (laughs) clip. I'm back. I'm back. So sorry. Um, So, Sam, hopefully that answers your question. You're right. I'm not an economist, and I'm not well-equipped to answer that question. I'm trying real hard to do some book learning, but my gift to myself in college was to never take an economics class. So we're all suffering the consequences of that now. Yeah, yeah. And I I also just wanted to point out that – these two um, these two groups of people that there are the elites, the wealthy that benefit from inflation, and there are also the, like the elderly, those people that have already amassed wealth. Um, and it doesn't need to be a seen amount of wealth; it just could be a home and some savings. Mm-hmm. Um, people like that, I, I I personally love like Noam Chomsky, like their opinions. Um, I believe they're incentivized to believe to have to change their opinions over time. More, be more conservative and basically take away individual liberties um, of individ- the individual liberties of others, depending on the current situation. I mean, Noam Chomsky at his age, he must have a lot of elderly friends that passed away during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't he be more like um, more sympathetic towards um, vaccine passports and these systemic changes that, are, well, it's just my opinion that like, I love these figures, but I'm kind of I'm very conflicted these days, and people don't talk about a lot of the serious. You love like, what was uh, that? I'm sorry, I missed, I missed the word. You you love these. Uh, Noam Chomsky. Uh, I love these figures. These figures, like sorry. I love Noam Chomsky. I love Kyle yeah. Polinsky. I love like yeah. uh, listening to you as well. But um, there's there's been a shift since last year or over the last two years that I can't come into. I can't come to terms with and with the community, but I'll jump down now. It was really lo- lovely talking with you. No, no, I appreciate that, Sam. And I think that one thing that could happen is for more of us to just talk to each other. You know, I, I would like, you know, I, Kyle's been on the show. I would like for us to have more regular conversations, even offline as left media figures, so we can get on the same page about some stuff and work out our differences in person and for everything not to be a whole big thing where people feel like they have to take teams. I know that, you know, this is something that Marianne feels strongly about as well. And there have been some efforts to get some players in the left media and politics together. 
and talk about things. So there can be a more coordinated left the way that there is on the right. And I'm optimistic that we're moving in the right direction there. But part of the issue is infrastructural, right? Like there are all these big think tanks and money thrown at the right and also neoliberals in terms of like cap and stuff. But then to come mm -hmm. around and think of a third way suggestions for things. And there's just not the same kind of funding system evolved to propagate left ideas. So it's like all of us ad hoc, like, you know, I, I'm, and I'm some, I'm some of them like, I earn money, my lifestyle right mm -hmm. now is kind of hilarious. I don't know how I ended up here, but I earn money making kind of political entertainment, but I do it. Like I left the law firm. I went to work for Bernie, became a journalist because of my personal politics and my ideology and my commitment to movement politics. And it puts you in a weird space. And so to the extent that I do comms on the show, it's because I want to do comms for free. And I, <laughs> I, would, I was working for The Intercept thinking, gosh, I can't believe they're paying me for this. This is what I was doing for free during my lunch break as an attorney. So I, it, it feels weird. We were happy to do it, but there also isn't the same infrastructure for people to be sitting around full time writing out you know, talking points, memos and stuff the way that exists on the right. And I'm not quite sure what to do about that because the people who tend to have money to not to share a politics. Yeah, and they tend to benefit from the current system and they but they use that money and they put it, they apply pressure on it. So right. that, that kind of, I, I wish people would, would take that into consideration a little more. And I wish uh, people would do what you do is you kind of, you break down the ideas and get to the deep root, the root causes of these issues rather than talking about the superficial problem we're dealing with right now. So well, I, I, I love that. that Sam. Occasionally we will do a sex in the city episode, but on the whole, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> fine. That's fine. We need to relax every once in a while. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank Sam. you so much. I, All right. I, take care. Take care, Sam. Um, I am inclined to want to invite Sylvester up because Sly, I know that we've stood on this podcast many a time and I always appreciate your commentary, but here's the deal. My phone is on red. The food has arrived. Your girl wants to watch the season finale of Insecure. I'm being a very rude date right now. So I have got to log off. This is the first time. It's episode 11. It's the first time I have not gotten to the end of the queue. I see you, Ahmed. I see you, Tucker. I see you, Dylan. And I see you, Sylvester. I would urge you to get in the queue ASAP for the next episode. You know when it's going to be. It's going to be next Friday after the Thursday episode drops. I promise I will do it, give you at least two hours and probably get through everybody because this is the first time I haven't done so. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much for all of your kind words and for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. This can feel like a lonely task sometimes, and I do feel like I'm shouting into the ether. And I really appreciate that Colin makes me feel a little more grounded and a little more connected with what people are thinking and feeling in different parts of the country and at different stages of their lives. And so I appreciate every single one of you. And as always, I urge you to keep the faith. <laughs> pilot in a podcast wish i had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats wish i had a million dollars wish i had a